Surat Al-Ahzab, Surat number 33, verses 41 and onward. Here I translated this for you last time. Some addition comments on the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, Bukratun wa Asila literally means that you should glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala morning and evening. It can be understood literally that at least every morning and every evening a person should do some nafil ibadah. You can take it in a general sense. Tasbih means to glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it also means in addition to the five fard salah, you should have a ma'mul of morning and evening engaging in some nafil ibadah. All nafil ibadah can be counted as zikr. Whether it's zikr of la ilaha illallah, zikr of Allah's name, making dua, reciting Quran, sending the from the Prophet ﷺ, making istighfar. Any type of nafil ibadah like that can be mentioned here as zikr. So that's the first practical step. And because these days we are all doing that, if nothing else, even suhoor and iftar are ibadah. So you are doing ibadah morning and evening when you eat. So if you can keep that mamul up or practice up after Ramadan, that in morning and evening try to do some type of nafil ibadah. And dhikr, also second meaning that dhikr can have, and sometimes bukratun wa asila in Arabic is used as a construct to denote all the time. It means morning and evening means actually all throughout the a.m. and throughout the p.m. that they do it all the time. In another ayah Allah Ta'ala has mentioned to make it clear that dhikr is all the time. This is Surah Nisa, we did it last year. These are those people who remember Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala when they're standing, when they're sitting, when they're lying on their sides. So these are all of the three physical positions a person can have. What it meant is that in any posture means however they are, wherever they are, in har hal, in every state, they remember Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala inside their heart. In Bukhari, Nabi Akrim Sassam, the hadith narrated by Sayyidina Abu Musa Ashri that the Prophet said that the example of the one who remembers Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is like the person who is alive, kalmasal al hay, and the person who does not remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is like the person who is dead, kalmasal al mayyit. So it means that life and death, spiritual life, we are spiritually alive when our heart is remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is the nature of all of the other creation, which Allah Ta'ala has mentioned in several ayat that we've done before, that every single thing in the universe does the tasbih and hamd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala non-stop, uninterruptedly. So what we should do is that obviously we cannot do formal ibadah all the time because we have to live in the world, earn the world, engage the world, but at least our heart and our mind should always be full of feelings and thoughts about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That form of zikr, our mashayikh have called that in Arabic, wukuf al-qalbi. means to pause your heart on the remembrance of Allah SWT. That your body may be engaged in this world, you may be outwardly studying or working or interacting, but your heart remains engaged in feeling feelings for Allah SWT and your mind keeps thinking thoughts about Allah SWT. Then Sayyidina Rasulullah in another hadith, Sayyidina Abu Hurairah narrates that 
that any gathering which takes place without the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and without sending salawat, salutations on the Prophet sallallahu will be a source of regret. It may not necessarily be outright sin, but will be a source of regret for the participants of that gathering on the Day of Judgment. Why? Because another day the Prophet said that the people of Jannah, the only thing they will regret, they will have hasrat over those moments in their life that they spent without zikr. Because that could have led to potentially additional darajat or levels in Jannah. So it means that we should try to fill up our day and our night with the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just like that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In Surah Baqarah, Surah Baqarah verse 152, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, takfurun." That you should make zikr of me, Allah ta'ala says, and I will make zikr of you. Very important ayah, but we did it last year. Which means that whenever we remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah ta'ala remembers us. So if nothing else, that one ayah in of itself is sufficient uh, for a person to be motivated to do the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In Hadith in Bukhari, the Prophet said that Allah ta'ala said that I'm with my servant when he remembers me and when he engages his tongue with the recitation of my Quran also in Bukhari. So it means that whenever we're doing the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah ta'ala's madad, his nusrat, his rahmah is with us, his ma'iyah, his companionship is with us. Another reason in Bukhari, Sayyidina Burair and Arisa, the Prophet said that Allah ta'ala said, that I am with my servant when he remembers me. When he remembers me in privacy, in his own self, I remember him in myself. And when he remembers me in a gathering, then I remember him in a nobler gathering, i.e. the gathering of the angels. So that means that if we remember Allah Ta'ala in a gathering of zikr, Allah Ta'ala will do, Allah will do zikr of us in the gathering of angels. And if we remember Allah Ta'ala silently, humbly, secretly in our qalb, in our heart, then Allah Ta'ala does zikr of us in His own self, and Allah Ta'ala knows best what that means. This is why the great Mufassir Sahaba Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas said that all other acts of ibadah have particular times set for them. Zikr is that one ibadah that has no particular time no particular condition is limitless, limitless, no particular fixed pattern, and that's why a person should try to increase the amount of zikr that they do in their life. Verse 45 onwards. Ya ayyuhan nabiyya inna arsalnaaka shahidan wa mubashshiran wa nadira. O Nabiya Kareem Sassam, we certainly have sent you as a witness, as a bearer of glad tidings, and as a warner both to mu'mineen and kuffar, as a warner to those who neglect the belief in Allah Ta'ala or in His disobedience. وَدَّعِيًا إِلَى اللَّهِ بِإِذْنِهِ And we have sent you as one who invites to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala بِإِذْنِهِ By divine leave, by Allah ta'ala's will and permission وَسِرَاجٌ munira, And we have sent you as an illuminating lamp Alright, so the first thing is that Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu is shaheed Means he is a shahid And elsewhere he's been mentioned as shaheed in Quran He is going to He has come as a witness Right? A witness over all of humanity and a witness over the entire Ummah. And the rubbed here is also what we were talking about yesterday, Fatima Nabuat, that Sayyidina Sallallahu the last and final messenger, and he will now be a witness over all of humanity. There should be no messenger that will come after him. The other aspect, bear of glad tidings, is for those who choose to believe that Allah Subhanahu will love them, His mercy will envelop them, they will have Jannah as a warner to those who disbelieve or disobey that there is a punishment, there is a day of judgment where we will have to meet Allah subhanahu wa then a punishment will be given out on that day of judgment to those who sinned or who disbelieved. Third attribute that Allah subhanahu wa is da'i, that He invites people to Allah subhanahu wa and invites people to the deen of Allah subhanahu wa 
And this is something that is obviously something that all the Prophets will do. But in Surah Al-Imran, Surah 3, verse 104, Allah Ta'ala has mentioned that this is something that the Ummah has to do. Where Allah SWT said in Quran, وَلْتَكُمْ مِنْكُمْ أُمَّةً يَدْعُونَ إِلَى الْخَيْرِ That from amongst you there should be an Ummah يَدْعُونَ إِلَى الْخَيْرِ That invites to what is true and noble and correct. وَيَعْمُلُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ and they enjoin what is good, and they forbid what is evil. Indeed, such people will be those who are successful. So that means that this da'wah function, because the Prophet is the last and final Prophet, that this is something that the people in the Ummah have to carry out. We have to invite humanity to that message that the Prophet invited humanity in his time to. We have to invite fellow believers to that message that the Prophet invited to. This is actually that one ayah is really the basic foundation of what is popularly known as Dawat and Tabligh. But Dawat and Tabligh is not something that is confined to the last 50 or 100 years or something that is a South Asian phenomenon. It's a Quranic injunction on all mu'mineen in whatever level and capacity and way and form to do Dawah. Dawah means to invite non-Muslims to the of Islam and tabligh means to make the message of Islam reach the hearts of those Muslims who have professed belief in that Islam on their tongue. Right? And so whatever extent there's not one particular Jamal who has a monopoly on that, to whatever extent a person has to do it, but it's part of being an Ummah. And nobody can deny the concept of Dawah and Tabligh because that would be denying Quran al Karim. So first and foremost, Nabiya Karim Sassim is the Da'i, but the entire Ummah has been described in Quran that we do Dawah to Khair and we enjoin the good and we forbid the evil. The last way Allah Ta'ala describes the Prophet in this path is Sirajim Munira, which is that he's an illuminating lantern. And this is again something that we did for you in Ayatul Nur and Surah Nur where you got an understanding. So it means that Nabiya Karim Sassim is a Siraj, he gives off light. But Munir means he makes others Munawwar. Not just that he emanates light, but people take that light away from them. This is what our Mashaikh have also turned to something called Nisbat. Sometimes we give the example of a fire. The most minimum benefit a person gets is when you sit by the fire, you get warm. But when you leave the fire, you're still cold. Second benefit is that you sit by the fire and you get so much warmth from the fire that when you leave, you stay warm. You're still warm when you leave the fire, but you're not able to warm anyone else. Third benefit you can get from the fire is you get warm in the fire and when you go you stay warm and you even take a piece of the fire with you such that you can be a source of light for others. And the fourth benefit a person can get from the fire is they stay by the fire and they're warm. When they move away they're still warm and they take such a large amount of the fire with them that they can even light the fire in other people. That is Sayyidina Rasulullah Siraj al and so those Sahabi Kram then who kept his company, then they also became Siraj al-Munira for the Tabin, And then the Muttaqeen of the Tabin and the Salihin of the Tabin, they become Siraj al-Munira for the Tabai Tabin. So this is the way our deen functions. That we always put ourselves in the sohbah of those people who when we're in their company, we, at least we are warm. If we are better and we have more taqwa, we keep their company more, then we can even take that warmth with us. If we're even better and we learn, then even we can maybe even get so much benefit from that nur, that we can carry that nur with us in our life, so we become a source of nur in our home, in our family. And if a person is even more, then they can themselves take that so much nur from deen, that they can then illuminate others with that. 
And this is the way Nabi Akram is described that this is the method and this is the hakika of his dawah. So that ummah, which is an ummah of dawah, also has to become a sirajam munira. Verse 49. Some ahkam here now, there are going to be some legal rulings in Quran, but you can get the deep details of them in the books of Islamic law, sharia and fiqh. I will just mention the rules in a very sort of brief way. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu That all you believe Ida naqahtumul mu'minat That when you marry believing women Thumma tuluktumuhunna And then you divorce them Min kamle antamassuhunna Before, literally means before you touch them You could translate this, this Literally before you touch men Touch them means before you consummate the marriage Right? That's a more fancy English term Hopefully you will understand that And if that is the case Famalukum alayhinna min idda then there is no idda upon such a woman. So a woman got married, but she was divorced before the marriage was consummated. There is no idda upon her. So first, some of you may be wondering, what is an idda? Idda is a waiting period that a woman has to spend, either in the case of if her husband divorces her, or in the case if her husband passes away. In English, we call that he widows her. He leaves her behind as a widow. If... Uh, even in divorce... They are different types of divorces, but that is too much detail to go into, go into, go into for here. If a man divorces his wife, there are three ways to be divorced: raji, ba'in, and mughalala. Either way, once a woman is divorced and she has to spend her idda, so if she is normal position, is she has to spend that waiting period three menstrual cycles. So if she is divorced in a period of puberty, she has, uh, in a period of purity, a moment of purity, then she should wait for her first monthly period. When that ends, then the second one ends, and when the third one ends, her idda has ended. One reason for that is because the philosophy behind idda is what in Arabic we call istibra'i raham, means that her womb will be purged of anything that that other man may have implanted there. Means either she will become pregnant, her pregnancy will become apparent if she was impregnated very shortly prior to the divorce, because the question of paternity is critical in the deen of Islam. And even today, DNA paternity testing is something that is available to 0.000001% of humanity. And even that at a significant cost. Right? So this is the Islamic method where Allah SWT preserved genealogy and lineage. And if in three periods have passed and she doesn't know pregnancy appears, then clearly she is uh, not bearing any child of her former ex-husband. Right? That is just one of the many reasons behind idda. One of the many reasons behind idda. Second, let's say she's pregnant already, she's clearly pregnant, then her idda will be until she gives birth. If she's eight months pregnant and some horrific husband divorces his wife when his wife is eight months pregnant, then her idda will end after just one month when she deli- whenever she delivers her baby. And if she is a woman who, what in, English, in medical terms we call post-menopause, means she doesn't actually have any monthly periods anymore, she's past that age, then it will be three lunar months, right? three calendar months. If a woman is spending an idda, not because she was divorced by her husband, but because her husband passed away, then again, if she is pregnant, then her idda will be until she delivers birth. And if she is not pregnant, irrespective of whether she is menopausal or postmenopausal, her idda will be four months, ten days. These are things that were mentioned earlier in Quran, and we did them last year. Four months and ten days. Okay? Very briefly, I would just mention a little bit about idda. And then I'll just come back and say one thing about this verse, the actual ruling that is in one case that is being mentioned in this verse. A lot of people today, they don't 
observe this Quranic injunction, which has occurred here and in several other places in Quran, the woman doesn't spend an idda. The rules of idda is that the woman must stay in her home. She should not leave her home other than utmost necessity. And yes, even attending the wedding of a niece is not construed as necessity. Necessity means physical, medical, life necessity, not social obligation, life obligation. The woman cannot leave the house other than that. This is the hukum of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what Allah ta'ala wants a woman to do when her husband has passed away or if she has been divorced. Right? It's not for a person today to say, well, I don't see what's the point. This philosophy that keeps coming up against Quran, that isme haraj kya You know, if you don't pray fajr, isme haraj kya If you want to be rational, purely rational about it, Honestly, there's no haraj if you don't pray Fajr Salah. If you want to be purely rational about it, if you take that philosophy that what's the harm if I break this command of Allah Taala, you will be breaking Allah Ta'ala's commands left and right on earth. If I said, what's the haraj? I never go on hajj. What's the harm in that? You'll be left with maybe zakat because then you can say, okay, the poor will be harmed if I don't give zakat. So on that philosophy, you'll give zakat. But you will find no need to pray, no need to fast, no need to go for hajj. Because if you break any one of those commandments of Allah Ta'ala, there is no haraj. There is no haraj. So that is another deen. That's not deen of Islam. That's called secular liberalism. It's John Stuart Mill, the harm principle, that every individual is at liberty in society to do whatever he wants as long as it does not harm another individual or society. That's another religion. Islam, you have to submit to Allah Ta'ala's command irrespective of whether violation of the command would harm someone or not. So a woman, it's absolutely farad, let me make it clear. As farad as hajj is once in a lifetime, if your husband dies once in a lifetime, which is normally the case, maybe a woman may be widowed twice, it is as farad as it is to go on hajj for that woman to spend that idda. Within that idda, just like within hajj, it is farad for her to do arafat and mina and mudalfa and all of that, it is as farad for a woman to spend every aspect, follow every teaching of idda. Idda is very simple. She should stay in her home and she should not even within her home display a great amount of happiness. It doesn't mean she can never smile. Doesn't mean she should be frowning, but there should not be parties taking place in her home. There should not be celebrations taking place in her home. She should live a simple, humble, serene life, not overly sad and depressed, but not engaging in fun and merriment either, right? She can be at home, she can be smiling with her children, she can be laughing when her grandchildren come to visit her. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But she has to remain in her home with a certain level of decorum that is absolutely far upon her. And this is, this is one, again, I feel that this is a, something I've witnessed in this segment of society. Gross violation of Inda. Massive violation, almost zero, near zero compliance with the command of Allah Ta'ala in Quran for a woman to spend in Inda. Here, another command which I will just make clear, because what is this word, uh, before you touch them. So actually, in the end of Islam, and, okay, I forgot to, the last part of the ayat for you. Okay, and then you should grant them, what does it mean? Number one is that you should grant them a provision and part from them in a most beautiful manner. What does this mean? It's talking about meher. Right, so meher is another thing that I explained this last year. It's absolutely fard for a man to give his wife. Absolutely fard. Even if he never divorces her, it's fard for him to give that meher that he chose to have announced in front of everyone in the wedding hall. 
That was your choice that you said it at that large amount. <laughs> it's fard for him to give his wife the mehr within his lifetime. The only thing is that as long as the nikah remains, ta'khir, you can postpone paying the mehr that is jais. But the second the nikah breaks through the lock, then no postponement is allowed. It becomes fard immediately. The vast majority of secular educated but not educated Islam people in Pakistan think that you don't ever have to give the far mehr unless there's talaq. No. Even if there's never talaq, it's absolutely far for you to give the mehr. It's just that you have some time to give it. And when talaq happens, the time expires. Alright? Okay. In this particular case, that if there's a woman with whom the marriage was not consummated, then no mehr is far. No mehr is uh Sorry, uh, I'll just explain a moment. It, a woman's meher will be given half to her. She will get half the meher. Half the meher. What does it mean to be consummated, right? There are two aspects to this. Consummated could mean the actual act itself. But no, Islam has said that a woman has presented herself for that act. So in Arabic, this is called khalwati sahiha. Khalwati sahiha means that if the woman now entered into nikah with that man, if she now because otherwise she should have observed her job in front of him. Otherwise she should have observed Islamic rules of interaction with him. Means she should have never been alone with him. If ever she puts herself in his presence alone, in such a way that if he had wanted to, he could have consummated the act, that entitles her to half of the mirror. That entitles her to it. No, sorry. That entitles her to the whole mirror. She will be considered as she won't fall under this verse. If ever she puts herself, because she put herself in that position, she, in other words, fulfilled her duty as a wife, she made herself available to the husband, let's put it that way. So she did her wifely duty, so that means she's now 100% wife, and therefore she's entitled 100% to the mayor, even if that man chose not to actually consummate the marriage with her, but if there was ever a halibut sahiha, then she doesn't fall under this verse, she is entitled to the full mayor. If, however, neither was the marriage consummated, nor did she ever make herself available for that, then that case is what's being mentioned here. That case has also been mentioned in Surah Baqarah, verse 237, in which the Allah said that that won't be entitled for half of the mehr. Alright? That is when the dowry has been mentioned. And if there's a case that they never even, they made a mistake that they didn't set the mehr, then there are different views and scholars as to how much she should be given. Alright? Here, jamila. What does this mean? This means that when they have to leave one another, right? When they leave one another, that he should part, they should part in the best of manners and he should not take the gifts back. He cannot ask for the gifts back. So whatever jewelry, that you or your mother or your mom or anyone gave her is hers now. It's done. It's done. It's like you cannot take it back. You cannot take one drop of that jewelry back. It belongs to her. Uh, and you cannot deprive her of any gifts. And you should, in the most beautiful manner, means also you should not part with offensive or inappropriate words. You should try to part on amicable terms. Right? Why of this? This is because Allah Ta'ala is honoring the woman. She got married to you. And now you have chosen to divorce her. Right? So she gave herself in marriage to you. So she gets to keep every gift that was given to her in the wedding. The whole bridal registry, if you're in America. Here, Zever. <laughs> Simply, Right? All of that is hers. 
You cannot take any of it back. If the mother says, No, we don't accept that. Because there's a principle in Sharia, Al-Maruf kal mashrut that what is understood to be the norm will be determined to be the legal ruling. And everybody knows that when the mother-in-law gives jewelry to the woman, you call it or you call it whatever you want to call it, right? Bas, jewelry is kohogya. Alright? Yes, you even call it that. You even call it that. So if anyone knows of any such case that has happened in their family, they should try gently with love and compassion to explain that no, actually, you should give that jewelry back. Alright? And even if the mother says, no, I give it to her, thinking she would be my daughter-in-law her whole life, and this is our khandani jewelry. Yes, you gave it thinking that, but your son chose to divorce her. So that's your son's fault. Right? And the jewelry will remain hers. Ya ayyuhan nabi Okay, verse number 15. Oh, nabi Akhlim, so we've made permissible... Okay, this is a long passage. We've made permissible to your spouses, to whom you have given their meher, and your legitimately bonded servants, whom Allah Ta'ala has awarded you as spoils of war, and the daughters of your paternal uncle, the daughters of your paternal aunts, the daughters of your maternal uncles, the daughters of your maternal aunts, those who and who migrated with you, and any believing woman, any believing woman who has gifted herself or given herself to the Prophet if the Prophet wants to marry her, this, all of this, this above, is this last part, sorry, not all of it, this last part is only for you, in his house for the Prophet and not the believers in general. Allah Ta'ala says that we know what we have ordained and stipulated for them in respect to their wives and respect to their bondswomen, so there's no difficulty for you, and Allah Ta'ala is all forgiving, all merciful. So some specific things that are mentioned. First you have the legalization of first cousin marriage, so daughters of your maternal uncles, maternal aunts, paternal uncle, paternal aunts, etc. That is showing uh, that marriage to first cousin is permissible. Right? And this you did this earlier when Sayyidina Sosa married Sayyidina Zainab bin Tijash. After Sayyidina Zaid divorced her, she was his first cousin. So this ayah is still continuing a little bit from that that is permissible for the Prophet to marry his first cousin, and this is permissible to any believer, but the Prophet ﷺ had, uh, now this is something I did for you last year, uh, but there are always people who are new, but this is the concept of the Adudi Azwaj, let me just make a few comments on that, and those of you who want to hear more detail can listen to the recordings from last year, Sayyidina Rasulullah had one wife until he was 52, and her name is Ummul Mu'maneen Khadija Badiulatana, 51, 52, 53, I don't remember, it's low 50s, so what does that mean? For the prime of the Prophet's life, and remember he passes away when he's 63, for the prime of his life he was a one-woman man. For the prime of his life he was a one-woman man. Then from the age 52 to 63, in the last 10 years of his life, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent revelation to him to marry so-and-so and to marry so-and-so and to marry so-and-so, it wasn't out of his own, it wasn't as a man that he married them, he married them as a prophet. There's nothing to do with desire, nothing to do with any other reason that a person today may want to take more than one wife. He married every successive wife only as a prophet. And within that, those who are more familiar with the Sira will know that his heart's love, although he was kind and compassionate and loving to all of them, but his heart's love was Ummul Mu'minina Aishar Badilatana. Again, in that sense, a one woman, men. Alright? Now here is one Allah Ta'ala's revelation comes in Qur'an and Allah Ta'ala's revelation also comes directly on the heart of the Prophet that's not there in Qur'an. 
I've explained that to you before. For example, where to put which ayah, Allah Ta'ala mentioned that directly to the Prophet So this is one indication in Qur'an where Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala had revealed that to the Prophet So some of these things that unfortunately the Orientalists and disbelievers uh, try to critique the Prophet And remember, when you're talking about an age when 60 is the average life expectancy, so someone who's 52 onwards, so think like today, if 80 is the life expectancy, so somebody who's 72 years onwards, so somebody until the age of 72, in today's terms, only is married to one woman, and from 72 to 80, they have a number of marriages as a prophet, because Allah Ta'ala revealed it to them. There were certain reasons for that. Uh, one example is this, that the, Allah Ta'ala wanted to show that first cousin marriage is permissible. So whenever you ask this question to us, that is it permissible to marry the first cousin, Allah Ta'ala actually made Nabi Akrim Sallallahu marry his first cousin, and revealed this ayah specifically to tell you that. That's the whole reason that took place. And similarly, the Prophet's wife uh, marriage with uh, a Jew who converted to Islam, then Sayyidina Safiya, or with a Christian who converted to Islam, Sayyidatina Umm Mu'minin Maria Kiptiya, Anhuma, and uh, all of this was to show. And the marriage of the Prophet with the slave Umm Mu'min Jawariya was also to show the Sahaba, to show the equality. This was actually to uplift slavery. To show people that no, slaves are not indecent people. Even the Prophet can marry a slave. Do you understand in pre-Islamic Arabia, no well-respected Arab from Quraysh would deign to marry a slave. So in the Bikram was the, all of these marriages were done to show things to humanity. And the Prophet had those additional marriages as from his capacity as being a Prophet. So that's something that you have to always understand and always remember. Mm, verse number... Yes, 51. Okay, this 51 also is something specific to the Prophet Why? Because again, when a non-prophetic person, and a believer, and this I did, I can't repeat that whole discussion. I did that last year when we did that, that you can marry two, three, four wives. What does that mean? Those who are interested can listen and they may be disappointed in what they hear. But I've explained that verse in detail last year. But in that case, when a believer marries more than one wife, he is required under Islamic law to spend equal time and money in outward care and affection. Obviously, a person's internal emotions, a person may not have control over that. Here, Allah Ta'ala 51 is waiving that for the Prophet Because again, the Prophet doesn't do it out of his own choice. He did it because Allah Ta'ala forced him to do it as his Prophet. So Allah Ta'ala realizes that, says that Allah Ta'ala waives that from him. And Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, so verse 51, Specifically for the Prophet that you may defer spending time with any of them that you will, right? And you may have over and accommodate anyone which pleases you. And there is no blame on you if you uh, desire or return back to those whom you had left alone. It means Nabi has been given clear permission. You can spend time with whichever one you want. And if there's one that you weren't spending time with, later you want to spend time, you can do that also. Because the Prophet didn't do it out of his own will. He married them because Allah Ta'ala told him to. Whereas a normal believer who marries more than a wife of his own will has to. This verse doesn't apply to him. He is bound right, to spend the same amount of time, money, care, affection, etc. on them. Even such that the woman traveling. So whenever he travels, they have to take turns. Yes, there is an exception to that. Whereas if the wife agrees, but entirely of her own free will, not because there's no choice. Not because the husband has put him in her in a circumstance where there's real no other option. No. But of her own entire free will that she is fine with less than maybe what her entitlement is. Alright? 
But for Sayyidina Rasulullah this is what Allah Ta'ala is mentioning in the Quran. And Allah Ta'ala gives the Prophet even an ishara that's okay, you do can prefer some over others, but even the ones that you maybe don't accommodate or keep at a distance, maybe sometimes you should spend time with them and that would be better. Because Allah Subhanahu also is taking after looking after Mahatma Mu'mineen, right? So uh, this is more appropriate and best that you should soothe and comfort them so they will not be sad, but rather they'll be pleased and content with what you give them, all of them, and Allah Ta'ala knows what is in your hearts. Wallahu ya'lamu ma fi kulubikum. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allahu aliman halima. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all knowing and He's all understanding. Halim is all forbearing, but it reflects Allah Ta'ala's understanding and compassion here. So clearly then, Sayyidina Rasulullah has been given this choice, uh, and uh, the Prophet if you look at his seerah, that yes, he did perhaps, not perhaps, he certainly spent more time with Umm Aisha, but at the same time, he did spend time with all of his other wives. He never overlooked someone entirely, but yes, you may see a preference in terms of time spent for Sayyidina Aisha. Anha. You can have some of the men come a bit closer, so that some of the new people can get a chance to sit in a cooler place. And after this also, after this ayah, there were some wives also who sometimes voluntarily would forfeit their turn for another wife, for example, most famously, Umm Mu'mineen said in the Sauda, anha, she would sometimes forfeit her turn to Umm Mu'mineen said the Aisha, because every wife ultimately wants to see her husband happy, right? And Umm Mu'mineen, one can just imagine, I mean, we're men, we can't fully imagine, but we can imagine also, and women can imagine, person would just be just happy just to be the wife of the Prophet That itself is just, I'm sure, something that would be like every Sahabiya's dream come true, right? So she would be so happy in that. And this is something generally, that also we should see generally in humanity. Uh, and this I'll give a little ishara, uh, that in terms of khidmat, right, sometimes if you know that somebody else can do a khidmat better than you, or you know that somebody is more comfortable with someone's khidmat, to go and let them do that khidmat, because that is your love for that person, that you want them to be treated and taken care of in a way that they are comfortable with. After that, however, in verse number 52, what does Allah say that no further wives are permitted to you, nor is changing them for other wives, uh, nor is yeah, nor is changing them for other wives or nor taking it. Literally means that even if their beauty may appeal to you, uh, even if her beauty may appeal to you, unless except those who are your bondswomen and Allah Ta'ala is watching all things. Okay. What does this mean? Number one. So after the revelation of verse 51 and 52, Allah Ta'ala said, Now from now on, even the Prophet was not going to marry any other woman. Second, uh, that those who were already in the those women who are already in the marriage of the Prophet they will have and that came earlier right that they were this uh, but these verses are revealed before verses 28 which we did for you when Allah Ta'ala told them to give them a choice. Do you want to choose the life and finery of this world or you want to choose Allah Ta'ala and the Prophet So in that instance, the Prophet could have let them go of their own choice, but the Prophet on his own 
On his choice, he's not going to let any of the wife go. But on their choice, they will be offered that if they want to separate. That is a verse that came earlier in Quran, which is verse 28 of the same surah, but actually it was after this verse was revealed. Share a lot of discussion on this verse. It's really basically, maybe I'll share with you, right, that one aspect of tafsir is the the chronology and dating of verses. Which verse came before and which verse came after. And sometimes you also have multiplicity of opinion on this issue and then that leads to different legal interpretations. So the first interpretation was what I gave you was that these verses actually were revealed before and that verse was revealed after. Others have taken it the other way around that these verses were revealed after and those verses were revealed before. So depending on how you choose to accept the chronology of these verses, you may come to a different understanding as to whether it was permissible for the Prophet to take any wives after this point. But either way, I mean, you can, if you look at the Sira, you can identify a point after which the Prophet didn't take any further wives. That is clear. Now, whether this verse was revealed before that point or after that point can be a subject of scholarly discussion, but there's no doubt that a point came after which Nabi did not take any wives. All right? And uh, as all of you know, the Prophet there was never any wife of his that was divorced. Okay. Then there's this question that people raise uh, that if there, even if their beauty uh, puts you in a state of wonder okay this one some of the ulama have mentioned an incident here that Sayyidina Ali once told the Prophet to marry the daughter of his uncle Sayyidina Hamza because she was extremely beautiful Sayyidina refused he refused right? and he said that he did not want to marry her so here the Prophet himself chose not to marry here uh, so what this verse means what, how can I put this to you let's say I tell you Okay, I mean, don't laugh. I'm, I'm, I'm coming up with a way to explain it to you that will make sense, but it's not meant to be a joke. It's meant to explain it to you. All right. So if I was to tell you here, you can have some chocolate ice cream, and you say, "Look, I'm not interested at all in ice cream." Fine. Later on, I change my mind. I no longer want. I no longer deem it's permissible for you to have ice cream. So then I say to you, even if you like chocolate ice cream, you can't have it. That's what is being said in this verse. Hopefully you can understand. The reason I have to explain it to you this way is to be clear because some, again, very crude and lewd orientalists suggest, use this verse to suggest that Nabi Yaqtim married on the basis of lust. Right? So it's very important actually to keep in mind the context that actually there was this beautiful woman who the Prophet said, no, I'm not interested in marrying her. Right? So when it was permissible, the Prophet said, I have no interest. Then Allah Ta'ala to make it clear that you can't marry anymore, just a way of Allah Ta'ala expressing the speech, that even if you are attracted to them, you can't marry them anymore. Although, even were you to be impressed by their beauty, you can't attract them. So do you, maybe, now you understand, I can say the ice cream example again. I, in, in those days when it's permissible for you to have ice cream, I say, here, would you like some chocolate ice cream? You say, I'm not interested in that at all. Later on, I decide to take away the permissibility, 
and declare to you that it's not permissible to have ice cream and to make it very strong declaration, I say from now on it's not permissible to have ice cream even if you're crazy mad about it. It doesn't mean that you were. There's nothing from your part that you are. In fact, I have a record that you said you're not interested in this type of stuff at all. Alright? Now you understand? This is another perfect example that many times you should realize and we've pointed out to you that you cannot understand the Quran on translation alone. Because if the English translator translates it accurately, he will write that even if their beauty puts you in wonder, and so you will read that, and the English translation will make you think, and even anybody who just knows Arabic, even an Arab won't be able to understand this without scholarly explanation. Because the superficial understanding from the words is that Nabiyyakism was attracted in a lustful way to beauty and the billah of women. Right? Okay? Alright. So this verse is done. Alright. Lots of details in the seerah about Ummahat al-Mu'mineen, Azwaj al-Mutahirat that can be uh, done in a seerah course. Next commandment is, uh, and this is going to do something uh, something linked to hijab that we had done, what we were talking about, the specific commands about the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. I told you that's going to come, that they have to speak to men behind the curtain. So, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, O you who believe, O believers, that you should not enter the house of house or the homes, uh, literally Bayut, house or homes of Nabiya Karim Sassam. And again, I counsel you to go to that museum in Medina Manawar and see that model and how small each hujra was of the home of Mu'mineen. So, oh, you believe you should not enter the homes and houses of the Prophet until and unless you were given permission to do so. For example, to come to partake of a meal. And then, when even when you do that, once you've entered, then you should not enter without wait, you, with waiting around for its time. Means you should once you enter, you should disperse. So when you're invited, then go in, and when you have eaten, then disperse without socializing for conversation. For that hurts the Prophet ﷺ, but he is too shy. He shies away from telling you. So this was a beautiful example of. Uh, you know, Ida means it hurts or harms or is a source of discomfort for Nabi However, he's too embarrassed to tell you that. That you're hanging out and he can't tell you to leave. You're just sitting around. You're not going anywhere. There's nothing else to do. Class is finished. But you don't leave. <laughs> right? So, and this happened to the Vasamusahamikram. So, he is too shy. He's too embarrassed to tell you to leave. Right? Wallahu la yastahi min al-haq. But Allah SWT is not embarrassed in any way from saying haq, from saying what is true. So Allah Ta'ala sent Qur'an al-Kareem to reveal this on Sahaba Ikram. But not just on Sahaba Ikram, but it's there for the whole Ummah. So now the whole Ummah has been told by Allah SWT that you shouldn't go into the homes of the Prophet or anybody's home for that matter, unless you've been given permission. If you're invited for some reason, whether it's a meal, whether it's some function, one that event to which you are invited to ends, don't simply stay back and linger endlessly. You should go. Right? Okay. And when Osa Bekram initially, that when you ask, but this also for the Tabin who became Mu'mineen later, in the time of the Sabiat and Umahat al-Mu'mineen, that, O oh, believers, that when you ask, because the whole eye is addressed to it, Ya ayyuhalladhina amana, right? So believers, when you ask the women, 
any matter about something, for something, for something needed about some matter, then you should ask them فَاسْأَلُوهُنَّ مِنْ وَرَاءِ hijab. That you should ask them from behind a screen, behind a partition, from behind a curtain. ذَلَكُمْ أَتْحَرُوا لِقُلُوبِكُمْ That is more pure for your spiritual heart وَقُلُوبِهِنَّ And for their spiritual heart. So this is a very important eye of Qur'an al-Kareem. Right? And this shows you that Sahabiyat al-Umahat al-Mu'mineen They would interact with the partition between them And you did earlier the ayah where the Umahat would speak But they would not speak in alluring or attractive tones with them Alright? So this is very important Now a question that people raise Is this just for Umahat al-Mu'mineen? Yes what? Yes and no Which part is just for Umahat al-Mu'mineen? This part, that it is farz to do so. Those of you who know Arabic grammar, fasalu is amr, and say that amr comes from wujub for obligation. But the second part, that is true for everyone. It will always be purer and always be better, spiritually speaking. For any believing man and any believing woman that if they have to speak about some matter that they should speak about that matter such that there is a curtain and a screen between the two of them. That part that is am, that is for everyone. And that is why especially in our tradition in Tasawwuf, right? Because people, students are coming actually to get that very purity. So especially when it comes to deen, if you're a woman and you're consulting a male scholar, something about deen, so actually your reason for talking to him is precisely for this taharat kalb, for the purification of heart, then you should meet that person behind a partition. Right? Okay? Alhamdulillah. Allah has made it clear in the Quran that what is athar, what is better? If a person sincere, if anybody tells you in this world, this is better for you, and you think that person is fairly wise, you might start doing it. When ahkum al-hakimin, Allahul hakim al-alim, says something is better and more pure for you, why would we hesitate in doing that? Why would we think this is the way to do it? And even I will take a little dig at co-education, right? Because you can have co-education this way. People are running global multinational companies. Through hijab, right? Through teleconferencing, through email, they're able to coordinate multinational, and multinational sometimes global means over 50, 60 countries, right? Without ever meeting face to face, right? That's a very rare executive board meeting where they may resort to video conferencing. But even that, right, if some reason the camera is not working, the meeting goes fine. They don't cancel the meeting, they have the meeting, right? And the meeting is, su- is successful and they're able to administratively run multi-billion, trillion dollar companies while actually maintaining hijab. In this sense, in that meeting, right? So, you know, you could easily design a university where, uh, you know, women are there and men are there, but the male and female students don't interact, but they get access to the same professor, the same course material, the same lecture, you know, especially using... Uh, video lecturing or uh, it could easily be done it's not something that's beyond the capacity of insan right so amal on sharia is within our capacity whether we choose to do it or not is our own uh, is our own decision alright then another act thing that was, uh, the Allah said in Quran وَمَا كَانَ لَكُمْ أَن تُؤْذُوا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ 
that it is not befit any one of you that you should harm even in the slightest Sayyidina Rasulullah What does that mean? That if you were to talk to one of the Umhat al-Mu'mineen and maybe one of you start feeling a slight, even a drop of desire for them that would be hurtful to the Prophet that would be such an affront and such a violation of your Ummati Nabi relationship, right? And second, وَلَا أَن أَزْوَاجُهُ مِن بَعْدِهِ أَبَدًا And you can never ever marry his wives. So this was a rule for the Ammahatami that when they will become widowed, when the person passes away from this earth, they can never remarry. It doesn't befit them that they should marry any other man after having been married to Sayyidina Rasulullah Azima. Indeed, any violation of the above is azim in the law, is tremendous in the law. So that's why I told you that it's highly, strongly recommended for women other than Ummahat al Mu'mineen to talk behind that partition. Alright? And now, in some sense, you have an easier way because people don't even have to talk face to face anymore. You have the phone. And the phone is obviously when you. So, if a woman consults an Islamic on the phone, so the, the partition is there, you can't see her. Right? You can't see her. And email is even like that. SMS is even like that. Right? So, even modern methods of communication have even solved this issue. You can communicate with someone without seeing them and without being with them in their physical presence. But if you are going to be in their physical presence, and that can also happen, right? But then you should have a partition between the two of you. That is athar, that is more pure and more noble for you. Right? Into Don't see anything else you want to say about this. Yeah, and this general, uh, this part of the ayah that that we recited, وَمَا كَانَ لَكُمْ أَن Within this ayah, it means that none of you should hurt the Prophet in this way, but it's also a general teaching. No one of you, O believers, يَا أَيُّهَا الْدِنَامَنُ None of you should ever in your life do any single thing that would hurt the Prophet when he sees your hisab on the Day of Judgment. We should not leave his sunnah. We should not mock his sunnah. We should not leave his seerah. Right? All of that is going to hurt him. Right? Now when a somebody, a founder of a company, leaves behind a legacy, he expects the people who succeed him to live up to that legacy and to retain the same vision and mission. So a Nabi, a Prophet, وسلم, who leaves behind a sunnah for his ummah, if the people of the ummah don't pick up that legacy, then this will be actually a way of hurting the Prophet And we don't want to hurt that Nabi who, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, never hurt us. Who could never ever imagine hurting us. Who is actually incapable of hurting us. Why have we made ourselves so capable of hurting that one human being in all of human history who was completely incapable of hurting us? This is the level that we have fallen to. We don't, we have to, we need to think more about the Ummati Nabi relationship. And it's coming in Yasin also, inshallah, if we can reach it. The Ummati Nabi relationship is extremely important. Don't take it lightly. Don't take it for granted. And Alhamdulillah, Nabi Karim Sussam didn't take his side lightly. That's how many times we explain to you in talks that a person asks, that I have a good Ummati. The simple answer. If you think he was a kind of okay Nabi, 
and you'd be a kind of okay ummati. If you think it was a so-so nabi, then you follow the sunnah so-so sometimes. But if you know in your heart of hearts that he was the most amazing, the most loyal, the most dedicated, the most sincere, the most wonderful, the most amazing nabi, then you should also try to be his most, and his most, whether it's a man or a woman, you should try to be the Prophet's most dedicated, most loyal, most ardent, most following, most amazing ummati. That's called ikhlas. That's real ikhlas. Ikhlas is not superficial manners in the meeting and with your employees and with your colleagues. Ikhlas is, are you mukhlis with your nabi? If a person is not mukhlis with their nabi, but they're a doctor, they talk nicely to their nurse, you don't have ikhlas with your nabi, that's the more important, most important human relationship is the ummati nabi relationship. Right? So this is a very important ayah. We should think about that. And it does not befit you, it is not for you, it is not permissible for you. It should be inconceivable for you, Alladina Amanu. What? Antu Rasulullah. That you should ever, ever, in the slightest of ways, even hurt or disappoint or let down or harm Sayyidina Rasulullah. Right? Okay. Verse number 54. Whether, uh, okay. In Tubdu Shay'an, whether you reveal something, or whether you conceal it, that indeed Allah subhanahu is all-knowing over each and every single thing. It means it's not just your actions and your statements, it's also your thoughts and your feelings that can hurt the Prophet Allah Ta'ala knows all of it. So don't think a thought that when the Prophet sees that thought in your book of deeds, he will be hurt by it. Don't feel a feeling of unlawful passion or unlawful greed that when the Prophet sees that my ummatis were full of these unlawful feelings, that he's hurt by it on the Day of Judgment. Allah Ta'ala knows everything that we do and everything that we consume. Then, uh, verse number 55. Here, this has to do with the hijab and mahram, so the mahram Allah Ta'ala is repeating because it may seem to Ummahat al-Mu'mineen that it's very strong and that no one should even see them without a partition so Allah Ta'ala reminds them that no, la junaha alayhinna that there is no harm on them yani the wives of Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu that in the company of their with, in the company of regard to their fathers, their sons, their brothers, their brothers, sons, their sisters, sons their women, their bond servants that there is no harm if they remove their hijab in front of these people. However, what taqina they should remain on taqwa, what taqina law they should remain fearful and conscious of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Indeed, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is a witness over each and every single thing. Right. So, uh, all the mahram relatives for umahatul minin, also for them, they do not have to observe hijab in front of their mahram relatives just Allah Ta'ala is reiterating that reiterating that verse 56 another very famous ayah of Quran al-Kareem inna Allah wa malaikatuhu yusalluna ala nabiyyi ya ayyuhalladhina amanu sallu alayhi wa sallimu taslima so we should all do amal on this at least once Allahumma salli ala sirna muhammad wa ala ala sirna muhammad wa barik wa sallam translation of ayah that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and each and every, all the angels, send salawat on Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. What does salawat mean? So salawat means, depending on who it's referring to, it means sending mercy. 
It can mean making dua. That's why salah is the single salawat. Or it can mean hamd. So when it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it means Allah ta'ala sends mercies and blessings. When it means the angels, so the angels are sending blessings and also praising the Prophet When we send salawat, also we are making dua for the Prophet and sending blessings upon him and praising the Prophet So this is a command that all you who believe Allah ta'ala and the angels are non-stop. Non-stop. Yusalluna mudare. It's istimrar. Non-stop, perpetually, Allah Ta'ala is perpetually sending salawat on the Prophet From the very first second of creation when he created his nur of nubuwa till all the way for eternity, that Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala is perpetually sending salawat on the Prophet And every single angel is always sending salawat on the Prophet O oh, you who believe, sallu Can you not also send salawat on that Prophet Sallu alayhi wa sallimu Right? So this is a command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, this is Allah subhanahu wa mercy on us. That our tongues are not worthy of sending salawat on the Prophet In fact, Nabi Yaqtim is, it befits his shan that Allah ta'ala sends salawat on him. It befits his shan that angels send salawat on him. But Allah ta'ala said, okay, Mu'mineen, I also want you to participate and you send salawat on him. So this is Allah ta'ala's mercy on us. It's mercy on us. Right? Otherwise, really, our salawat would reduce the shan of the Prophet ﷺ. But it's Allah Ta'ala's kindness on us. Some things about the salawat, sending the salawat. Number one, at the very least, one should do amal on this every day. So the minimum one should do is once a day, sending salawat on the Prophet. This means outside of prayer. Obviously you do it in prayer. But we're talking about voluntary act. Something we explained to you before, that one is to do something out of obligation, and one is to do something out of passion. Right? And we have to become passionate worshippers. I know in this day and age, the best of us are even obligatory worshippers who worship out of obligation. But we have to make that transition. We have to at least realize that that is the goal. Even if we're struggling to worship out of obligation, at least we should know our deen has set the goal as worshipping out of passion. And so the same thing we should send salawat and abhikam at least once with love. However, it is in the practice of the vast majority of ulama, sulaha, salihin of this ummah to send salawat on the Prophet 100 times a day. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallam. What does a person get when a person sends salawat? So first, Nabi Akram sallam said in the Sahidith and Sahih Muslim that whenever a person sends salawat on the Prophet Allah sends 10 salawat on him. So if you say it a hundred times a day, Allah Ta'ala will send 1,000 salawat on you a day. If you do that for 365 days for one year, that means in one year Allah Ta'ala will have sent 365,000 salawat on you. And if you had been regularly practicing zikr for just three years, that for three years every day you sent 100 times the rutri from the Prophet then those three years Allah Ta'ala would have sent over 1 million salawat on you. Now do you see why zikr is not optional? As we explain to people, you need those million salawat. <laughs> Me and you, we need those million salawat from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you can get one million salawat from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in three years, throughout those three years, just by sending the retreat from the Prophet a hundred times a day. So then people wonder, I don't know why I don't have the strength to have taqwa. You, you lost the million blessings Allah ta'ala could have given you to strengthen your iman. I don't know why I'm weak in my iman. I don't know why I don't have taqwa. I don't know why I lapse. I still skip prayer. Ramadan comes, it leaves, and I go back to my own self. I went to an umrah and I came back and I still had an anger problem. So that why don't we able to change? 
because we're not doing the dhikr through which Allah Ta'ala sends His blessings and hidayah on us that changes our heart. We're not going to change our heart. Allah Ta'ala's mercy is going to come on our heart and change our heart. Our job is to do those actions that attract the mercy of Allah Ta'ala onto our heart. That's why the Mashaikh say, become a person of dhikr, become a person of dhikr, then you will become a person of change. You become a person of dhikr, you become a person of taqwa, you become a person of dhikr, you become a person of haya. Why? Because when you do dhikr, Allah Ta'ala sends these things on you. And Allah Ta'ala is the one who fixes us. Right? You can, keep, you can fix yourself with as many Ramadans and Umrahs and Hajjahs as you want. Right? If, when you go back to your normal life and your life is empty of the dhikr of Allah, you will go back to becoming empty of the passion for deen. So you have to do it regularly. Outside Ramadan, outside Umrah, outside Hajj, and part of your normal, daily, mundane, routine life. You have to do the zikr of Allah SWT. You have to send salawat in the Biyakim You have to do tilawat of Quran al-Kareem. You have to make dua to Allah SWT. You have to show Him that passion. Pray some nafal salat. Then you will get everything. Everything that you think is difficult in deen, you will get all of it. You will get taqwa. You will get haya. You will get it all. You will get sabr. You will get shukr. You will get hilm. You will get humility. You will get it all. If, because Allah Ta'ala is going to bestow it. Alright? So that's the first thing. Second is that Another hadith, Nabi Akhim said that a group of angels travel throughout the earth to bring the salawat that my ummah say to bring it to me. That was true when the Prophet was alive and that is also true when he has passed away from this earth that whenever anyone sends salawat, the angels take it to Medina Manawara, to the Rosa. That is what is mentioned in hadith. One very widespread but very incorrect understanding, wrong understanding, as if we say Drood Sharif, the Prophet Psalm's Ruh itself comes here to receive it, and therefore we should stand up because the Prophet Ruh has entered the room. No. It didn't make sense even. Other would not be that we recite the Ruh and the Prophet should come to receive it. Other would be that we recite Salawat and the angels take it over there. So there's no concept like that in the deen. Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Ruh is in Medina Manawra. It's not going to come to your home. We would love to tell you that. I would love for the Prophet Ruh to come into my room. Right? I would love that. And if you, actually, if you believe that, I don't see why you're doing anything in life. You should just be, if you really believe that, you, if you really believe that, you should just be doing the retreat 24 hours a day. If you really believe that on your saying salawat, Nabi Karim Salaru comes to you, you should forget everything you do in life. Right? And because you can always be in Medina, right, in your own bedroom. <laughs> so no, but this is a mercy that Allah has given us, the visitation to Medina Manorah. Can the Jews visit Sayyidina Musa Islam? No. Can the Christians visit Sayyidina Isa Islam? No. Me and you, we can visit Sayyidina Rasulullah It's an incredible blessing from Allah SWT. This place called Medina Manawra. This place called Masjid Nabwi. This place called Al-Rawdat Al-Mubarak. Right? So when Allah has given us such a blessing, why do we have to twist that and say, no, the reason Ruh comes here, we should all stand up every time we say the Ruh. Asani, achibatni. Right? So other for the Prophet Alright? Yes, when you go there, and when you're standing at his roda, no angels take it, he hears you live himself. Yes, that happens when you're there. But when you're here, or anywhere other than there, the angels will carry your salawat to him. This itself, if we don't have time, but if you could even understand just the reality of this one thing, right, uh, you would sacrifice your whole life for the deen of Islam and for Allah subhanahu wa if you knew even just what this one blessing is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. Right? 
And in uh, uh, authentic hadith in Abu Dawud, the Prophet said that Friday is the best day, so send salawat to me in abundance on this day. Alright? So that means, now look, abundance is relative. Abundance doesn't have to be thousands. If you normally say 100, say 200 on Fridays. You say 10, say 20 on Fridays. You say it once other day, say it twice on Friday. Or you say it zero every day, say it once on Friday. But you should get the feeling of the hadith. The hadith is increased. There should be an increase of the salawat that people send on the Biyya Kareem Sassam on a Friday. Right? Here much, much could be said about the salawat on the Biyya Kareem Sassam. Sufficient that Allah's part in Quran has told us to send the salawat on the Prophet Maybe this could be a whole topic we give one day. Verse 57. And those people who hurt Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now, what does this mean? Nobody can hurt Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala is mustaghni. Right? He's ghani. But Allah ta'ala is describing it that way. That you hurt Allah ta'ala in this sense that He is your kind and merciful Rabb who loves to love you, who loves to bestow upon you, who loves to forgive you. And then when you don't turn to Him, in a sense it hurts Him. He can't be hurt, but it's His love for us that He gets disappointed in us when we don't do that. So those who disappoint the Prophet and hurt Buddha so then what happens? So then Allah Ta'ala gets angry. Yes? Allah Ta'ala gets angry. Allah Ta'ala means Allah Ta'ala sends His la'na on such a person. Whether they're hurting Allah Ta'ala or whether they're hurting Sayyidina Rasulullah So we should really think twice before we neglect sunnah, before we leave sunnah, before we hurt the Prophet before we violate the Ummati Nabi Bond. What does La'ana mean? Almost everybody translates this as curse. Curse is the correct English translation for this Arabic word. However, how does Allah Ta'ala curse? Allah Ta'ala does not curse, Na'udhu the way people in this world curse one another with curse words and profanity. No. Allah Ta'ala's curse on someone means Bo'od an rahmatihi He picks that person up and he puts him outside the reach of his mercy. That's what it means. Because Allah Ta'ala's mercy is limitless. Nothing, no human being can put themselves outside Allah Ta'ala's mercy. When la'ana means Allah Ta'ala picks a person up and puts him outside the reach of his own infinite mercy. Beyond infinity. <laughs> That's what Allah Ta'ala does. That's what it means. In this world and in the Akhirah, وَأَدَّلَهُمْ أَذَابًا مُحِيطًا This is why, Muhina, this is why uh, a humiliating punishment. This is the answer to the question that how can hell last forever? Sooner or later Allah Ta'ala will feel some compassion for that person. No, Allah Ta'ala has already picked that person up and put him outside the reach of his mercy. So Allah Ta'ala has his power over his own self. In that way, so that's why hell lasts forever. Otherwise, yes, if that person had remained within the radar of Allah's mercy, then yes, sooner or later, Allah's mercy would have come on him, and he, Allah would have taken him out. Right? So we should be very careful of ever wanting, ever, ever even risking in the slightest to fall under this category. Then to show you, Allah Akbar Kabira, Ajib, if only we could really. Realize what it means to be a mu'min. Now if Allah Ta'ala says this about himself, we can understand. Allah Ta'ala said it about the Prophet we understand. Next ayah. وَالَّذِينَ يُؤْذُونَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ بِغَيْرِ مَكْتَسَبُوا 
and as far as those and anyone who hurts and harms the believing men or hurts and harms the believing women right who hurts and harms the believing men or believing women means literally means what they not based on something they did and earned means without them deserving that hurt hurt right then what have they done mubina then they have taken on themselves a burden of slander and manifest clear sin. So it means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows us not just Allah ta'ala and the Messenger, Allah ta'ala also mu'mineen ki bi laj karte. That's our Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hmm? announcing in Quran universally that no one should even hurt those who believe in me. They're my believers. <laughs> They're my believers. So then how can we hurt one another? <laughs> and re- originally this I was referring to non-believers or hurt believers. And today we have believers who hurt believers. Hmm? Allahu Akbar. Hmm? How can any believer hurt a fellow believer after they have read this or heard this ayah of Quran al-Kanim? Not hurt. Why? Because Allah Ta'ala is saying they have a nisbah with me. Once they took iman, they become Abdullah. They have a connection with me. They're a believer in Allah. That itself should stop us from hurting them. Just the person's iman. The fact that they have iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should prevent us from ever wanting, ever hurting or harming anyone. Right? So this is the very beautiful ayah of Quran al-Kareem. And Allah also another ishara here is that what is one of the number one way that people hurt one another? Bohtan. This is one of the greatest way people hurt mu'mineen. Whether unbelievers hurt mu'mineen or believers hurt fellow mu'mineen. Slander, tells, rumor. It's amazed, I would tell you, amazed rumors. Right? And even happens within people who are otherwise pious, or even within fellow scholars, right? Rumors, Allahu Akbar. Crazy things people write. Rumors, hypostere on their blogs, hmm? writing all types of lies and fabrication as if it's truth, and spreading rumors and tales, right? And now you can smear someone, you have internet, you can open up your own blog and write whatever you want about anyone, <laughs> and there's no power on this earth to stop you. <laughs> You can do worldwide web-level slander. Hmm? This is the number one way people hurt one another. Alright? Ajeeb. Fair. You have to move a bit faster. Right? So verse number 59. Ya Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. O Nabi Akreem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now, this ayah I did for you before when we did Surah Noor. So I would just translate. Kulli azwajik to tell your wives. Wa banatika and your daughters. Wa and also tell Nisa al-Mu'mineen, tell all the women of the believers, Yudnina alayhinna min jalabib hinna, that they must draw their jalabib around them. We did this in detail in Surah Nur about maybe just exactly a week ago. Jalabib is full of jilbab. It means the outer garment, cloak, rope. It's fard on not just the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. Fard on every Muslim woman. To wear and what today they call abaya, but in Quranic Arabic is called a jilbab, but maybe people call a burqa, right? A outer garment like a coat, cloak, gown, robe that wraps them completely and hides the shape of their body. The inner garment hides the skin of their body, the outer garment hides the shape of their body. Okay? Alright. And this is best. Uh, this is so that they will be recognized and they will not be harmed. And indeed, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is all forgiving, all merciful. 
if the hypocrites and who are those those who have a disease in their if the hypocrites and walladhina fi qulubihim maradun and those who have a disease in their heart walmurjifuna fil madina if they uh, are going to spread and those who spread false rumors and slander in the city of Medina Munawra if they don't stop if they don't desist then what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say that thumma la yujawirunaka fiha illa qalila Allah says that we will certainly uh, we will incite you against them and we will definitely give you authority over them after which they will hardly be able to live with you in Medina as neighbors at all so this was the ishara Right, and we did some of this earlier, that if the people in Medina Manawar aren't true, if the Munafiqeen don't become true in their Iman, if the Jews don't observe their treaty, then Allah Ta'ala will purge Medina Manawar from such people. Mal'unin, they are cursed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Again, I've explained to you what that means. Inama thukifu, and wherever they shall be found, they will be seized, uhdiru wa kuttilu. Taktila, they will be seized and then they will be, they will, wherever they found, they will be seized and they will be put to death. Right? What does this mean? Okay. Now this is a punishment for those hypocrites who have, or who have a disease in their heart who spread rumors in Medina Manorah and they are not able to coexist in Medina Manorah. Means they are spreading rumors about and spreading mischief about Deen trying to play with people's Iman and people's Kufr. So the munafikin, in other words, not just being hypocritical in their heart, they would actually go and try to whisper and poison and confuse the hearts of believers. And they also sometimes try to cause violence between believers by trying to incite. One of the tools, for example, the munafikin was that before Islam, these two tribes, Aus and Khazraj, were at odds with one another. And now that they had accepted Islam, become Ansar, they were living peacefully with one another. So the munafikin would go and incite one another incite one against the other, the other against the one. Sometimes they're even singing some of their old songs, reciting some of their old poetry, which mentions some of their earlier pre-Islamic battles that they fought with one another. And these were poetries that they used to recite to one another to incite themselves to fight one another. So they were spreading sedition, violence, corruption, mischief, slander, rumors, lies. And so then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first says that if they, they should stop. And so not punishment and death initially. It's a warning by Allah subhanahu that they should stop, but if they don't stop, then this will be the punishment that they will face. Alright? Sixty two. And this was the same practice of Allah subhanahu in communities that passed before that those who were hypocrites are spreading corruption and sedition, they would be given a chance, a chance, a chance, a chance, but then ultimately when they exhausted all the chances and they never repented, then they would be arrested and they would be put to death. Right? And then Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, a very important general ayah. And you will never ever find any change in the practice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is something when people say we need to reform Islam, we need to modernize Islam, we need to change Islam, we need to bring Islam into the 21st century. Hmm? Look at what his ayah is saying. Allah is saying no. Lan you can never ever find the sunnatillahi to the ways of Allah Ta'ala, the practice of Allah Ta'ala, the decrees of Allah Ta'ala, the ordinances of Allah Ta'ala, the sanction of Allah Ta'ala, tabdila, you will never find any change in that. So there's no question that we cannot change. There's no tabdili, right? I mean, people say that word in English. No. 
you cannot bring any tamdil in deen of Islam. Right? Okay, verse 63, Yes'alunaka that all the people they will ask concerning the end of time, tell them that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the ultimate knowledge about that, but, but indeed, what will make you realize that the end of time may be near. The near, again, Karib is a relative term. What this man I explained to you before is that given that Nabiya Kareem is the last prophet, then the closest that humanity has ever been to the end of time is after the advent of the last prophet. The early prophets didn't know the end of time isn't going to come because yet another prophet is coming. Or if nothing else, they all knew that there was a last prophet that was going to come. So they were all you know, thinking the end of time can't be quote-unquote near because the last prophet still has to come. But now once the last and final prophet and messenger in every sense has come, now the next thing that comes is the end of time. Right, so in that sense it is near in terms of you've entered the final stage of human history. Second meaning of this is telling the unbelievers that look, as far as you are concerned, your qiyamah starts when you die. Because when you die, you will enter your grave and your grave will either be rose of the minerals of Jannah, garden from the gardens of Jannah, or it's going to be a constriction, or it can even be made into a blaze from the fire of hell. So that process is going to start when your own death takes place and that is imminent and that is very soon. Here Allah subhanahu wa then continues verse 64 that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He has removed them from His mercy and now that they're outside of His mercy وَأَدَّلَهُمْ سَعِيرًا So it means that Jahannam is something that exists outside the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa and here Allah ta'ala says خَلَدِينَ فِيهَا أَبَدًا and they will dwell therein forever. لَا يَجَدُونَ وَلِيًّا وَلَا نَصِيرًا they will find no protector and no helper in that jahannam nothing that can protect them against its fire and nothing that can help them relieve it in any way verse number 66 يَوْمَ تَقَلَّبُ وَجُوهُمْ فِي النَّارِ and this will be the day when their faces will be overturned and flipped in the fire almost like you flip something their faces will be overturned and flipped in the fire. And what will they say? Yaquluna, they will say, Ya laytana ata'na Allah wa ata'na rasula. Woe to us if only, if only we had obeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If only we had obeyed the Messenger sallallahu So again, in Ishara, right, that there are two types of obedience in our deen. Obedience to Allah ta'ala, Quran al-Kareem, and obedience to Sayyidina Rasulullah, his sunnah and hadith. And both things, Failing to do both of those obediences are things that the people of Jahannam will regret. And we'll call them, and then they will say, Rabbana, they will call to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inna ata'na sadatana, that oh, Rabb, we followed the elites in our society. Yes, that's what I'm trying to in a slightly different way for you. Leaders, chieftains, but it means sadat, we followed the elites. We followed the trendsetters. They told us what was fashionable. They told us what was liberal. They told us what was acceptable. They told us what was right. Hmm? We followed the elites and the trendsetters and the leaders of our society. Hmm? And we followed the elders. But they misled us and they misguided us from the path. So then they will make dua. What? Rabbana, atihim ze'faini min al-azabi. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give them a double punishment. Give them a well anuhum la nan kabira and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put them curse them with a mighty curse. Allah Akbar. So they will be cursing one another, the people of Jahannam. They will blame those very same transactors that they followed. They will be cursing them. 
verse number 69. Ya ayyuhaladina amanu, la takunu kalladina adho Musa. Oh, you who believe, don't be like those who hurt Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. So remember Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, you had so many stories of the money Israel in Surah Baqarah. And there are many, many incidents of how they hurt Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. Some commentators feel a particular incident is here. Uh, I'm just wondering whether we should... Fair, I'll do it for you. It's interesting, it's in the Hadith of Bukhari, Sayyidina said the Prophet said that once Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, he had a lot of haya. And the money is real, they would insist on, let's say like public showers, or public baths, as you've had in many earlier communities. But Sayyidina Musa would always go and bathe in seclusion. So some people, uh, intending to hurt him, spread a rumor that Sayyidina Musa bathed alone because he was, let's just say, trying to hide some skin disease or some type of deficiency. So then, what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do? This is Hadith in Bukhari. That once Sayyidina Musa Islam went to go bathe privately in some stream or some spring, and he put his clothes on a rock, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made the rock move. Made the rock move away, and then Sayyidina Musa Islam started chasing the rock. And when he started chasing the rock, then he ended up in the encampment of the Bani Israel, and the Bani Israel, let's say, managed to get a good look at him and realize that there was no deficiency in any way that he had, right? So, uh, some commentators have mentioned this particular incident, but there's so many incidents that the Bani Israel did that we mentioned in Surah Baqarah, in which they were negligent, or they hurt Sayyidina Musa Islam. So most important for us, we are being told, don't be disappointing believers in your Prophet, the way the Bani Israel were disappointing believers in their Prophet. I don't know how many of us can say we cleared this ayah. Right? Don't hurt and disappoint and let down Nabi Karim Sallallahu the way those let those people let down and hurt and disappointed Sayyidina Musa Sallallahu When Sayyidina Musa Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Sayyidina Musa Sallallahu was uh, extremely honorable in the eyes of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala he was extremely has a great rank in the eyes of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala Ya ayuhaladzina amanatakullaha wa kulu kawlan sadida That all you believe you should fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you should speak truthfully. You should always speak and your actions should be sound and your statements should be true. Why? Yuslih lakum a'malakum Allah ta'ala will correct your deeds for you. Wa yagfir lakum zanubakum Allah ta'ala will forgive you for your sins. Wa ma yuta'illaha and whosoever obeys Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa rasuluhu and whosoever obeys Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and that person will indeed have attained a great success. So this is also famous few eyes in Quran that are often recited in khutbah khutbah al-jumal, khutbah al-eid, khutbah al-nikah and most of you will have heard these eyes before. Another very famous ayah Quran Al-Karim verse 70 Inna aradna al-amanata ala samawati wal-ardi wal-jibali fa'abayna an yahmilnaha wa ashfaqna minha wa hamalaha al-insan Then Allah Ta'ala says Indeed if we had presented this amana this trust of deen this bond of being the abd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala this amana of freely worshipping and freely believing and freely obeying Allah Ta'ala when you could have equally freely disbelieved disobeyed uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is the amana. Allah ta'ala said it, were we to have, when we have presented, when we presented this amana to the samawat, to the heavens, and to the earth, and to the mountains, but they refused to bear it. They cringed at it. 
they cringed at it, they shied away from it, they shunned away from it, minha, wa hamalahal insan. But rather it was insan who took up that amana. Inna hukana zaluman jahula. Literally it means that insan is extremely unjust and extremely ignorant. Liyadaballahu munafikina wal munafikati wal mushrikina wal mushrikat wa yutuballahu alal mu'minina wal mu'minat wa kanallahu ghafoolun rahima And this was done so that Allah Ta'ala may punish the hypocrite men and women and the idolatrous men and women and Allah Ta'ala yutuballah Allah Ta'ala relents and accepts the tawbah of the believing men and women and indeed Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala is all forgiving and is all merciful. So this is elsewhere, it has come in Quran in Surah 22 verse 18 and also Surah 41 verse 11. So we will do that, that second one when it comes. That Allah subhanahu wa literally presented the amana to the samawat and the ard and the jabal. And they literally refused. There's no metaphor here, it's literal. Allah subhanahu wa gave them the chance that, oh mountains, if you want access to Janata for those, I can give you this chance as well. And I'll give you the freedom to disbelieve, the freedom to disobey, the freedom to harm others. And if you choose, despite that freedom, to freely believe, freely obey, freely worship, freely benefit, then you will get Jannah for those. The mountain said, no, we don't want to take that chance. We can't take that amana. We can't take that task. We can't be entrusted with such a thing. We're not worthy of being entrusted with such a thing. And so did the entire land say that. And so did all of the sky say that. But it's insan who took it. Now what does it mean that insan took it, right? Because you would say, I never was given a choice. <laughs> I was made this way, right? What does it mean insan took it? So it means, hal insan. It doesn't mean that humanity chose it. Hamala means humanity bore it. So yes, it's Allah Ta'ala's choice that each and every one of us are born human. But Allah Ta'ala is letting us know that what, it, what is it that humans are bearing? You are bearing a burden that the mountains refuse to bear. You weren't given a choice, that's a separate thing. You are bearing of such a burden that the mountains refuse to bear. Some say that Insan did hamal of this when in the Yom Alast, that is something we did for you last year when Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, He asked all of the believers, sorry, He asked all of humanity, Alastu bidambikum, that am I not your Rabb? Alu bala, every single human ruh said yes. What does that mean? Yes, Quran teaches us that every single human ruh has already seen Allah Ta'ala. And when they were looking at Allah Ta'ala in all of His beauty and majesty and glory, Allah Ta'ala asked every human ruh, everyone, every Muslim, every non-Muslim, Hitler, Mussolini, everyone, everyone. <laughs> and all human beings said, Bala, yes Allah Ta'ala, we affirm that you are our Rabb. At that moment they did choose that burden. What is that Abd-Rabb relationship? That's what it means. You are our Rabb means that we are your Abd. Okay, I put you on earth and I test. Will you live a life such that I am your Rabb? Will you live a life such that you are my Abd? That is the test. So just like we mentioned before, Ummati Nabi relationship, the other major relationship, the Abd, the Rabb relationship. Are you a Mukhlis Abd of Allah SWT? It means you can show up to work on time, you can show up to the meeting on time, you can't show up to Fajr on time. So what's going to be the benefit in the Akhirah? Of being a mukhlis employee, mukhlis professor, mukhlis student, but we weren't a mukhlis slave to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the real ikhlas. Right? So this abd rab relationship. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us. That man took this up. Alright, now a very interesting thing uh, about this where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, 
outwardly it seems, right, that man is extremely unjust and ignorant. So one meaning of this is that man is unjust and ignorant to himself because he didn't consider the consequences of this responsibility when he took this burden by saying bala when he said to Allah, yes, you are a rab. But some ulama have taken this in a different way that actually this word zaluman um, jahula actually means that in human sweet innocence, as opposed to gross ignorance, in their sweet innocence, they did this to themselves that they thought they could be an abd of Allah subhanahu ta'ala. So then what does Allah Ta'ala's mercy come? Then what does Allah Ta'ala do? That He finds He takes out the munafiqeen and mushrikeen. But for the mu'mineen, Allah Ta'ala enables them to be true to this amana by sending scripture and prophets, by sending kutub and anbiya. By teaching us even just Surah Al-Fatiha, just that dua itself, if we were to say it from our heart, heartfelt, and every rakan, every salah, we would be able to be true to this amana of being the abd of Allah Ta'ala who is our Rabb. So Allah Ta'ala helps, and that is the way where Allah Ta'ala then said at the end, that Yatub Allahu ala mu'mineen wa mu'minat, that Allah Ta'ala relents towards, and is lenient towards, compassion towards the believers, men and women, Allahu rahima, and Allah SWT is all forgiving and all merciful. All right. Next surah is surah Fatir here in surah Al-Azab, surah Sabah we did yesterday. So surah 34 we had done actually in the morning. Surah number 35, surah Fatir. All right. Fatir is means creator. Khalik also means creator. What's the difference? So, just like you have the same iftar, right? So, fatur. So, it means the beginning. So iftar is the way you begin eating. You rupture the fast, but it's the beginning, right? So, Fatir really means the original creator. This is one of Allah's Pantos attributes, that he is the original creator. Fatir is samawat wal ard. So let's begin this surah in the name of Allah, the Alhamdulillahi Fatir al-Samawati wal-Ardi So right there, the very first ayah has the reason why the surah is named Surah Fatir. All praise belongs to Allah SWT alone, who is the originator. Right? Originator or original creator of the Samawat and Ard of all of the heavens and earth. Next, Ja'il al-Mala'ika that Allah subhanahu is the one who made the angels rusulan, who made the angels uh, messengers. So this is the second aspect. So the first thing is Allah created the physical universe. And then he sent the angels as messengers to bring revelation to the prophets who were themselves messengers to the humanity who is going to live on that earth, which is the whole purpose of the creation of the entire universe. Okay. But rusulan... Al-Fantas made the angels their beings of wings and what is their wings? They have double, triple and quadruple wings. Then after that, Allah increases in his creation whatever he so wants. So then he further increases his creation 
in Allah Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all powerful over each and every single thing. So you have his being father, then you have him making the angels in the sense that I told you as messengers and that whole sequence of messaging. And then you have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increasing his creation, multiplying his creation, right? And then you have Allah Ta'ala being Qadr, that he is Qadir on each and every single thing. He has absolute power on each and every single thing. So what is the link between creation and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the angels. They are the Rusul. They are the messengers of Allah Ta'ala, who he, his emissaries of Allah, to whom he sends to the prophets, through whom he sends revelation to humanity. And there are also his emissaries who sometimes do certain things in this physical creation. There are certain aspects of the governing of physical creation that Allah Ta'ala has deputed to those angels who are his emissaries. Now what does this mean that Allah has created them with two and three and four wings? So in the hadith, Nabi Yaqeem said, it's also in Bukhari that the angel Jibreel had 600 wings. Allahu Alam, right? 600 wings may mean 600 wings, may mean 600 folds or levels or layers to his wings. Uh, all right. Doesn't mean, and all of us probably have those Judeo-Christian images of the angel, which is like a human body but with wings instead of arms. It doesn't mean the angel looks like that, right? Wing may not even be anything remotely near to the wing of a bird or a plane. It may just be some other thing, right? So you cannot really physically, uh, you cannot make a physical image or conceptualize of a physical image of an angel in your head uh, just on the basis of this word wing because that is not sufficient for us to understand the physical appearance of the angels. That whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has granted people out of his mercy, whatever mercy he descends upon people, Literally, Fatah means whatever mercy he opens up for them, فَلَا مُمْسِكَ لَهَا There is no one who can withhold and take back that mercy. Alright? And, similarly, وَمَا يُمْسِكَ And whatever Allah Ta'ala withholds from people, فَلَا مُرْسِلَ لَهُ مِنْ There is no one who can send that mercy. There is no one who can deliver that mercy. After, other than Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala, وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ And Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala is almighty and all wise. All right. What does this mean? So when Allah Ta'ala of His mercy wishes to send down Qur'an al-Kareem, send down the al-Kareem Sallallahu all of the might of the kuffar in the world cannot stop this sending by Allah Ta'ala of Rahmatullah al-Alameen of the Prophet who is a mercy for all of the worlds. In other words, they will never be able to eradicate Islam, they will never be able to eradicate the deen, nor in the lifetime of Sayyidina Rasulullah nor afterwards. They can never do that. It also means for an individual person that if Allah Ta'ala wants to send mercy on someone, then there is no one who can stop that mercy from receiving them. And if Allah Ta'ala has chosen to withhold His mercy, people may be able to give you material dunya, but they can never give you something which is the divine mercy. That is only and only Allah Ta'ala's ability to bestow. So, Ya Ayuhan Nas, O humanity, Ya Ayuhan Nas, Ni'matullahi Alaikum that you should remember the bounties and flavors and blessings of Allah on you. 
Is there any being who created you except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And he nourishes and sustains you from provisions from the sky as well as provisions from the earth. La ilaha illahu. There is no deity, no God except for him. And so what is it? Why is it that you were deceived? Why is it that you were deceived? Why is it that you were lapsing? Why is it that you turned back? Alright? Here it is that you are being turned back by the dunya, by nafs, by shaitan, by makhluk. Either way, you are turning away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How, what is it in the world that has made you turn away from Him? Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala consoles Nabi Yukrim sallallahu in verse 4. وَإِنْ يُكَذِّبُوكَ That, oh my Prophet if they call you a liar. So no problem, many messengers prior to you were also had been declared as liars and falsified. But know that that all matters and affairs will ultimately return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That all humanity know the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is true. Therefore, Therefore, the life of this world should never deceive you. And nor should you ever no, the life of the world should never deceive you about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and no illusion and no delusion should deceive you about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and indeed shaitan is an enemy to you so some have viewed that ultimate deceiver al-ghurur to be shaitan that don't let the ultimate deceiver deceive you indeed shaitan is an enemy to you and you should certainly take him and regard him as an enemy to yourself and then what does shaitan do? He calls to his partisans, his hizb. He's making a party, people who follow him. And what is he calling them for? Nothing else except except that they can be inmates and companions of the inferno or the blazing inferno, yani the fire of Jahannam. And those who disbelieve, for them there will be an adab and shadid, a tremendous and severe punishment. And for those who believe, and righteous acts of deeds, they will have kabir. they will have forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then a tremendous reward. What does it mean that even if a person has iman and amal salih, that in of itself is not going to enable them to enter Jannah, they will require the forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order to get Jannah. It's all pretty self-explanatory. Verse 9 onward. That person, for the one who's evil, whose evil deeds have been made to seem good, have been beautified for him. Then what does he do? Can he cause harm that have been beautified to him such that he views them to be good? Allah Ta'ala leaves astray whomsoever he wants and Allah Ta'ala guides whomsoever he wills. So let not your soul have remorse over them. Indeed, Allah Ta'ala has knowledge over what they do. Here was my falat tadhab nafsuka alayhim hasarat. Hasrat. That don't have hasrat over them. It's Allah subhanahu who gave guidance. It means after you give the guidance to someone, if they don't follow the teaching of that guidance, then you should not feel undue remorse for them. Allah ta'ala knows what they do. Allah ta'ala knows what they commit. Allah ta'ala knows who he wishes to guide. Wallahu ladhi riyah. And Allah subhanahu is that being who is sent on the winds which carry a cloud. And then Allah ta'ala wafts that cloud over to a 
um, barren piece of land and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revives the earth thereby after it had become dead Ba'da means by sending rain from that cloud and this is exactly the same way the resurrection will be that human beings will have died but then Allah ta'ala will issue his command and cause them to be revived and then when they are revived it will be just like they were before so here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is basically mentioning his ability and to the po- showing that he is qadr and able and powerful to create a situation which is known as Yawm al-Qiyamah. Verse 10 onwards said, Whoever wants izza, whomsoever wants honor and grace and dignity and izza can also mean power, but to Allah subhanahu wa alone belongs all izza. And to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ascends all the good word, the pure and noble statement ascends up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the proper, uh, the pious deed will raise up that kalimatayyib to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright. What is that pure word here? This is why sometimes we call it kalimatayyibah. This is simply that statement, la ilaha illallah, the kalima of faith that a person has. But that iman is raised up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is propelled upwards by good deeds. So the more and more amal salih a person has, the more and more it's like you have more air under the hot air balloon, the higher the balloon will go. So just like that, a person will reach greater and greater heights and altitudes in terms of the qurb with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in terms of darajah and jannah, the more and more amal they have below or propelling the iman that they have in their heart. So what does that mean? To, to be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we need to have iman and we need to have amal, we need to have good deeds that propel our iman up to him. Then Allah Ta'ala says indeed for those who do sayyat, for those who commit wrong deeds and who plan uh, and devise, who plan and commit wrong deeds, shadid, they will have a tremendous end and immense punishment. And all of the things that they plan, and all of their planning will certainly be destroyed, all of their conniving and scheming will be in vain. And Allah sponsor created you from sand or from dust, right, or from earth, as we explained before. And then He created you from a drop, and then He made you in pairs. So this means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, every single thing has been made in pairs. This shows the Quranic understanding that getting married is a human is human. To be married is to be human because every single human being has been created in pairs. And what you mm, no female conceives or delivers except with the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and no one whose life is prolonged is granted long life or has his life shortened except that it is written in a book fi kitab means in the writ and decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala indeed all of that is Easy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Verse 12, this is something we've also done before, that even the two bodies of water are not the same. The one is fresh and sweet and palatable and quenching to drink, and the other is salty and bitter. But from each of these you eat fresh meat and you extract jewels that you wear, 
What does it mean that from the waters that are salty, you will extract fish from salty waters, and there's also freshwater fish, there's also river trout, and there's also fish that are in the ocean. So from each of them you eat meat, each of them also their jewels, and that I don't know that much about, but I would assume pearls and other things are to be found in salt water and also in fresh water. So you extract jewels and ornaments that you wear. You will see ships there about cleaving through or plowing through the waves of the water so that you may seek the bounty and fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so that you may walakum tashkurun so that you may become people who are grateful. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enters the night into the day and Allah enters the day into the night and the night into the day and Allah subjected the sun and the moon. Each one travels each one is running for a definite term and an appointed term. This is Allah. This is Allah, Allah SWT, who is your Rabb and to whom all dominion and sovereignty belong. And all of those whom you call upon and supplicate and pray to instead of Him. And they have no min They have not even the slightest drop of power. This we did for you before that this is the skin that comes on the date seed, that thread, that white thread that comes when you take off the date from the seed. If you call them in Tadu'uhum La Yasma'u Du'aqum, they do not even hear your call. And even were they Walau Sami'u, even were they to hear Mastajabu, they would not be able to respond, means they could not Mastajabukum, they could not respond to your prayer, means they would not be able to fulfill any of your requests. And on the day of judgment, they themselves would reject and refuse the shirk that you did of them. And none can inform you in the way, no one can tell you like Allah Ta'ala, as no one can tell you about these realities like the one who is informed, like Al-Khabir, means like the way Allah Ta'ala can tell you about these things. Verse number 15. Ya yuhannas wantum al-fuqara'u ilallah That all you who believe, uh, all humanity, each and every one of you are fakir, are tremendously needy and utmost needy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Wallahu hu al-ghaniyul hamid But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself, he is al-ghani, is absolutely independent Al-hamid, he is praiseworthy This is an important ayah of Quran al-Kareem Another famous ayah that we are fakir This is what sometimes we call Quranic humanism Quranic humanism Quran is defined a human being as opposed to secular humanism. This is the ultimate way to show you how secular humanism has been designed as the antithesis to Quran. Quranic humanism, Ya ayuhannas, O each and every single person. Insan is humanity, nas is people. Antumul fuqara'u illallah. Each and every one of you ultimately, direly, desperately needs Allah subhanahu wa Secular humanism, you don't need God. But that's the first line of secularism. You don't need God. You don't need God personally. You don't need God. You don't need to worship. You don't need to believe. You don't need to obey, etc., etc. Quranic humanism. Human beings need God, not just mu'minin. A human insan is a person who is fakir. To be human is to need Allah. That's what they're saying in Quran. To not need Allah is not just to be a disbeliever. To not need Allah is to be inhuman. To be inhuman. So to be human is to need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to be Allah is to be above all need. Wallahu hu al-ghani to be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to be free of all need and al-hamid to be worthy of all praise. 
in and if Allah Ta'ala wills and wishes he could take you away and he could bring an entirely new creation and that is not in the slightest ways that is not difficult in the slightest that is not difficult in the least that is not hard in the least for Allah Ta'ala and no soul shall burden the soul of another the burden of another this we explain to you in detail some time ago uh, but just remember on that that no person will be able to take the burden of others but if you misled someone into sin then you will have to bear the sin of misleading someone if you guided someone to good, then you will get the reward for guiding someone. But ultimately, a person's actions will be their own on the day of judgment. If any person who is weighed down by their burden calls for help with his burden, means calls for assistance in the carrying of the burden, nothing will be lifted from him. Even if it is the close relative who he calls, even the close relative will not be able to lift any of their burden from them. You can only warn those who inwardly fear their Rabb and regularly pray. So what is this? You can only be a warner to those who fear their Rabb in the unseen. And those who pray their Salah. And those who purify themselves. They do their Tazkiyah for the benefit of their own self. And to Allah belongs the return. What does this I mean? Very important. Means that a person has to have two basic characteristics. If a person wants to know that, okay, look, when, when will I reach the point that I'm beyond reach? What is that point that if I cross that point, I, I can hear Quran, it won't even move me. What's that point if I cross that point, then I can hear the Hadith, the problem won't move me. What's that point? When is my heart going to be numbed? This is the point. You have to have two things in order for the warning to reach you. It's not just the warning of Quran, warning of the Prophet or anybody who is warning you on the basis of Quran and Sunnah. You need two things to remain receptive. And if you lose those two things, you could stop being receptive. Number one was fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Fear of Allah. That person who becomes fearless, then they're beyond warning. What are you warning them of? right? That person who becomes fearless, so if in our heart a person no longer feels any fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if they say, no, no, I think months have gone by before I actually felt the emotion of fear, what is that feeling? You will know when you feel it. You will be able to recognize what that feeling is to be afraid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you don't know what it is, it means you haven't felt it. There are no words I can say that will make you feel it, make you know what that feeling is. Right? You have to feel it. So if a person no longer fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're pretty much beyond reach. All the warnings of Quran and Hadith will just fall on deaf ears, will fall on a numb heart. So they have to fear Allah. And second, they have to keep praying. So if you say, you know, I don't know, I'm really slipping, I'm going far from deen, what should I do? It's okay, make sure you do two things. Make sure you never stop doing these two things. Make sure you never let go of these two things. Always fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and keep your salah. As long as you stick to these two things, there's still hope. There's still hope that the rest of it will affect you. But if you leave these two things, then you could become hopeless. Beyond the reach. 
And this is initially being told to the Prophet that they were beyond your reach. So if they're beyond the reach of the original Prophet then anybody who is sharing with you the prophetic teachings, you're going to be beyond their reach. Hmm? So fear Allah and pray regularly. And I'll also give you an ishara. These two things have nothing to do with aql. People think that, no, I will stay in Islam, understand Qur'an, and analyze it. As long as I do these two things, I'll be okay. No, no, no. If you understand and analyze Qur'an without fearing Allah, it will be of no benefit to you. If you understand and analyze Qur'an without praying Salah, it won't be of benefit to you. <laughs> always fear Allah and always pray to Him. Don't leave these two things. Right? Then, if a person has those two things, then what's the next? What's the next after? Okay, I got those two. What's the next? That's called Tazkiyah. That's the whole process. So these are the two foundations. Fear Allah and be regular in Salah. If you have these two foundations and after that there's something called Tazkiyah. Tazkiyah means purifying your heart, disciplining your soul, disciplining your nafs, making yourself follow everything on deen. Purging yourself from everything that is disliked, displeasing, doubtful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let alone from everything that is outright forbidden and prohibited by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then further doing tazkiyah, further doing tazkiyah such you purge yourself from the love or the la'm that we did earlier. The lahwal hadith, that which is futile, pointless, vain, which we did a few days ago in Quran, to purify themselves from that also. So then Al-Tal says about that person, وَمَنْ تَزَكَّى فَإِنَّمَا يَتَزَكَّى لِنَفْسِي And that person who does their tizkiyah, they do it only for their own benefit, to their own benefit. وَإِذَ اللَّهِ الْمَسِيرِ But they will return to Allah, and when they return to Allah Ta'ala having done their tizkiyah, then they will see the benefit of that tizkiyah. The next ayah 19, وَمَا يَسْتِوِ الْأَعْمَاهُ الْبَسِيرِ And indeed the seeing and the blind and the seeing can never be the same. Now here Allah doesn't mean literally, the rubs in this means that the person who is blind to Qur'an, blind to deen, blind to the sunnah of Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu and that person who is seeing it, these two can never be the same. They can never be the same. And similarly, can darkness can never be like light. And never like that can shade and sunlight, can these things ever be the same. وَمَا يَسْتَوَ الْأَحْيَاءُ وَلَا الْأَمْوَاتِ And the living and the dead can never be like the same. إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُسْمِئُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ And Allah subhanahu to whomsoever He wills, He will make them hear and hearken to the call. وَمَا أَنْتَ بِمُسْمِئِمْ مَنْ فِي الْقُبُورِ And you cannot make the people who are in the graves hear. You are in أَنْتَ إِلَّا نَذِيرِ That you are but a warner. You are but a warner. Inna arsalnaka bil haq. Indeed, Nabi Akram, we have sent you with haq, with absolute truth. Bashira wa nazira, as a bearer of glad tidings and as a warner of portents. Wa immin ummatin illa khalafiha nazir. And indeed, every single ummah, there has not been an ummah that has passed except before you, except that in nazir, a warner was sent to them. If they falsify you, then know that those who had come before, those who came before them, uh, also repudiated and falsified the messengers that came to them with proofs and scriptures and bizubar and the Psalms in his reference of Sayyidina Dawlai Psalm of the Kitab Munir and came to them with an illuminating and an illuminating scripture and book. 
And then I, I, Allah seized the disbelievers and took them to task. And look how intense indeed was my disapproval and punishment of them. Right? Verses 27. Alam tara anna allaha anzala minas samai ma'a That you do not see that Allah Ta'ala has sent down rains from the sky. And then this, this similar passage that we've done several times before in Al-Quran. And then Allah Ta'ala extracts thereby produce and fruits of various colors. And from the mountains are streaks of white and red varying in their hue and shades that are of the deepest and extremest black. And so, similarly among humans, right, means in the landscapes that you see, you will see many colors in landscapes, 28, women and nasi, and similarly from amongst human beings and creatures that crawl and animals that are on this earth, they also have a variation and they differ in their colors and in the same, in the same way. And the ones who are amongst Allah Ta'ala's servants, إِنَّمَا يَكْشَ اللَّهُ مِنْ إِبَادِهِ الْأُلَمَاءِ and from the ulama, from the ibad, those who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are, the, are those who have ilm in the la aziz and ghafoor. Indeed, Allah ta'ala is almighty, is most forgiving. Alright. Very important ayah here as well. This shows that who are the ulama and what's the effect of ilm of deen. Again, it goes back to that master attribute of fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the master attribute is fearing. So what does it mean? So if I'm learning anything about Islam, is it knowledge or is it information? Is it ilm or is it ma'numat? Ilm is a nur, Sayyidina Rasulullah al-ilmu nur, that knowledge is a nur. When do we know that what we're learning is ilm that is a nur when it increases us in our fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And if we hear things but our fear of Allah doesn't go up, then it's not knowledge, it's just information. Then we become information carriers. Now we had more information about Quran before we had less information about Quran, but we still have the same, less knowledge of Quran. So knowledge is something else, information is something else, ilm is something else, malumat is something else. Ilm in our deen is defined by Quran as that which increases a person in their fear of Allah subhanahu wa So this is what Allah Ta'ala said, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهُ That indeed those who truly fear Allah subhanahu wa min ibadihi, min means from his ibad, so it means first you're talking from humanity, from within humanity, the believers, from within the mu'mineen, the ibad, those who worship and submit to Allah Ta'ala. From within the ibad, there's going to be a group called ulama. So the word al-ulama is in Quran, but to be an alim, you have to be a person of ibadah, a person of ubudiyah, and a person whose knowledge has led them to fear Allah SWT. Alright? So what you're thinking, when I say this, is, oh, that means a lot of the ulama aren't really ulama. And what I'm thinking when I say this is, yes, they are, alhamdulillah, ulama who are ulama. Whether you have had a chance to meet them or not, that is your fortune or misfortune. There will always be people like this on earth. All of us. So we should take our deen from people who know Allah and the way we want to know who is a scholar. Not the person who impresses you the most on TV. Not the person who says the most rational thing. Not the person who has the best political commentary on the halat of Pakistan. No. And Alam is the one who fears Allah the most. And I tell you, watch those people on TV. You will see they can't even say the word taqwa. They never talk about that. 
Oh, they'll make fun of a beard and they'll make fun of why do you have to keep your shawar above your ankles and they'll talk sometimes even correct things about the political situation in Pakistan. And they'll tell you you don't have to wear hijab and they tell you you can do interest and they'll tell you modern banking isn't the same. They'll say so many things. You're looking for, forget, don't use your uncle to analyze what they're saying is correct or not. First look, is the Quranic sifat there? Show me the fear. Tell me from your heart that when you see that person on TV, your heart tells you they fear Allah. There's no way you can say that. They're not talking to you about fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They don't fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're talking about something else. They're just rationalizing sin. They're just providing justification and rationalizing sin, excuse one after the other for sin after sin after sin. Look, if it was really akal, if it was legitimate difference of opinion, they say, But if you see a person on TV that on every single issue on Deen, he is giving you license. And there's not even one in which he is more precautionary, he has ihtiyat, he has taqwa, abzal, awla, he can't even say these words. That's a sign for the son of alam. That's not the alam of deen. That's not the alam of deen. No matter who he says, I've studied for 35 years under so-and-so commentator of Quran and I spend my life at with him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You check your heart that after I watch this person's TV program, the effect that comes in my heart is I fear Allah more. Or after watching that person's TV program is the effect on your heart that oh, I can sin more. <laughs> What is the effect that person has on you? Your fear of Allah goes up or your fear of Allah goes down? It's your choice, right? It's your choice. But it's amazing to me how otherwise intelligent and good people have been fooled when it comes to their deen. They're not fooled when it comes to medicine. They're not fooled by real estate agents. But they get fooled when it comes to their deen. Right? So again Allah Ta'ala said, إِنَّمَا يَكْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ إِبَادِهُ الْعُلَمَاءُ That those who truly fear Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala from amongst His worshipful servants and slaves are those who have ilm about Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. So this is the real ulama, Imam al-Ghazali, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. He used to use this ayah and countless times he used to address the scholars of his time and say, you are the people who should fear Allah. And the real scholar is the one who fears Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. Right? Why is this, by the way? Let me explain to you another way. The more you know Allah, the more you fear Allah. And you see it in Sahaba Ikram. Allah Akbar, Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Siddiq, So terrified of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is Siddiq. He is the lover and beloved of the Prophet. Sayyidina Abu Bakr is mentioned in Quran. Right? But when he was passing away, what did he say? He said, Gosh, me koi gas katin kauta. I wish I was just a blade of grass. I wasn't a human so that my hisab wouldn't be taken. And he knows what type of life he lived. He didn't need a life of sin. He lived a life of purity but he feared Allah Ta'ala so much. Right? The more you know Allah, yes, the more you know Allah, the more you love Allah. And but also the more you know Allah, the more you fear Allah Ta'ala. Right? This is our deen. And anyway, you had it above that that was the primary attribute, one of the two, that you must fear Allah and you must remain steadfast on salah. And those who recite the Quran al Karim, Tilawat Kitab, again I tell you, you must do Tilawat in Arabic. And those who establish Salah, and then <coughs> they spend from that which Allah subhanahu wa has, they spend from what we, yani Allah subhanahu wa bestowed upon them, secretly and openly, Sirru wa 
what does this mean? That sometimes it benefits the deen. The default is that it's more benefit to you to give secretly. Secretly so that nobody knows. You don't make a show out of it. You don't attach your name to it, right? You give with your right hand such that your left doesn't know. Sometimes it benefits the deen if you give openly. Openly doesn't mean that you want to get your name put on that building, right? No. Openly means that if you give publicly, other people will see you giving and think, okay, well, if he can give, I can give too. For example, let's say there's fundraising taking place and there's a whole bunch of students and the students think, yeah, we can't give it. The uncles will do it, right? We don't even earn. All of a sudden, one student gets up and gives 5,000 rupees, right? So the other students will think, well, if he's a student, he can give. I can also give. In that sense, it means alaniya, right? It doesn't mean in any way uh, that you have to attach your names and have everything and every charity that should be done in your name. In fact, uh, in our history of the Ummah, uh, you find that it... I really haven't found it in any history, but I, I can't say. But to my own up-till-now reading of the history of the Ummah, nobody made a charitable donation from the Salihin. Certainly the rulers used to make charities in their name, right? So Nizam al-Mulki made Madhasa Nizamiya in his name, right? But in terms of Salihin... When they left charities, they wouldn't leave the charities for their names. They would want to pick another name, right? Another name. Some name that maybe has some Islamic significance or name it after some Sahaba, name it after some Sahabia, right? Because they didn't want people to remember their name. They said, Allah Ta'ala knows my name. Allah Ta'ala knows my name. That's sufficient for me. And that is something that's true. The more people know your name, the less Allah Ta'ala may know it, right? The more you do something for the sake of your... If it's your niyyah... If the more you do something so that others will recognize that you did it, then you don't want to endanger the fact that you want Allah Ta'ala to recognize that you did it. Right? Okay, so people who... Ah, right. So people who... Recite Quran al-Kareem who are regular in Salah and who spend from that which Allah has given them secretly and openly. Yarjuna tijaratan lan That they are hopeful of a tijara, hopeful of a trade that will never be in loss means that they are hopeful that when they come to Allah on the Day of Judgment, right, they will find that what they sent ahead of them is multiplied. They are investing in the most profitable business which is called Akhirah. <laughs> right? That's what it means. It, we put it in a loose, idiomatic English translation. So that Allah subhanahu wa may grant them their due entirely, their reward, and He may give them more than that from His fadl, from His divine bounty. Indeed, Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa is all forgiving, most appreciative. So here, this is another pairing of Quran, Ghafoor and Shakur. What does that mean? So Allah tells Ghafoor, He will forgive them. Perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive them for any, because of that charity, Allah ta'ala will forgive them for their sins. So first thing that happens, Allah will wipe away their sins, ghafoor, because of the charity. And then shakur, Allah will give them sawab for that charity. So that is a good deed that wipes away sins, at, while at the same time earning its own rewards. This is the shara Allah ta'ala made by coupling these two divine names of His at the end of this ayah. Verse 31. 
والذي اوحينا والذي اوحينا اليك من الكتاب هو الحق مصدقا لما بين يديه ان الله بعباده لخبير بصير over his ibad right now what does this mean at all generally khabir and basir here allah ta'ala is mentioning specifically over his ibad so this is a sense and you find those of you are studying arabic grammar lam is for taqid la khabirun la la khabirun basir so it means allah ta'ala is extra informed Get, obviously if you think about your aql there's no difference allah is equally informed about everyone but it's in no It's a sense of intimacy. That's what Allah Ta'ala is conveying here. Allah Ta'ala is khabir and basir over everyone. But as far as his ibad, he's intimately khabir and basir over them. It's meant to be felt in a nice way. Right? Allah Ta'ala is intimately khabir and basir over his ibad. ثُمَّ أَوْرَثْنَا الْكِتَابَ الَّذِينَ اسْتَفَيْنَا مِنْ إِبَادِنَا Then thereafter we made... <coughs> Those that we have selected from our ibad, we made them inheritors of the book. Right, and this is referring to the uh, Anbiya and the Mursaleen, the Prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But secondly, here Allah ta'ala is also reaching out to that group of people who are called Ahli Kitab. Right, and here Allah ta'ala is showing them that look, You, your prophet who had passed, let's say in the case of Isla, some 600 years before the Prophet he was the one who received the Bible, the Injil, the book. But you, by proxy, by niyaba, you were termed as Ahl Kitab, as an honor to you, that you are from that community whose forefathers were the companions of Isla, to whom was revealed the Injil, the book. So Allah is trying to reach out to them, right, uh, that this is something Allah selected you for. So the Christians should feel that we were selected for Christianity. And now we are fortunate enough to be Christians who are living at the time of the last and final prophets of some. So now we can be selected for Islam also. This is the sense, or this is why Allah subhanahu wa is saying this, uh, saying it in this particular way over here. But what happened? But some of them, so but some of these some of these ahli kitab wa minhum zalimun li nafsihi. Some of them are those who have wronged their own self. Wa minhum muqtasid. While there are some who were people of determination, what does it mean? People who um, have determined the straight course for them. Some people may translate this as moderate. I would not. Some of them are mediocre, huh? Some of them are mediocre. Some of them who are the some of them there are some who have determined and set the right course for themselves, right? Well, men whom sabikun bil khirat, and then there are those who have outdone and outstripped others in doing good deeds bi idnillahi with the hukum of Allah subhanahu wa taala. ذلك هو الفضل الكبير and indeed this is the great and tremendous fuzzle in Allah Ta'ala's great grace that he has sent upon people
this is referring to, then you have three categories here, right? Those who oppressed and wronged themselves, meaning they were sinners. Those who set themselves on the right course, but they didn't fly on it. So maybe you could call them mediocre or moderate in that sense. Uh, I don't want to use the word moderate because moderate has too much of a connotation in English in Pakistan, right? They set themselves on the right course, but they're not outperforming they're not excelling in it, non-excelling, right? And then you have the third category, which is Sabakun bil khairat. So the ones who, uh, both, the, both of the second ones, uh, those who commit sin, they need to get their forgiveness from Allah Ta'ala for their sins. Those who are on the right course but don't excel, they can expect a salvation from Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. But those who excel, they can expect the highest ranks of Jannah. So it shows in this ayah that there are levels of people and all of this will happen due to the fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. reason why we look into Jannah is because of the very next ayah, Jannah Adnin, that they will be uh, in eternal gardens. Uh, all three of these categories of people will enter into the internal gardens. They will be adorned therein with bracelets of, pearl, bracelets of gold and pearls and their garments there will be made of silk. So because all of these three categories were entered into Jannah, uh, that's the notion that some, through forgiveness of sins or through just acceptance of uh, the course they were on or because they were, they were given high ranks in Jannah because they excelled. What will they say when they enter Jannah? What will the people of Jannah or who are being admitted to Jannah say? Alhamdulillah, That praise be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who taken away all grief and sorrow from us. Indeed we found that Allah Ta'ala was ghafoor, that He forgave our sins and He was shakur, literally means He was appreciative, He honored with His karam and fuzzle, He gave us sawab and ajr for the good deeds that we used to do. Alladhi and praise be to that same Allah Subhanahu Wa that Allah Subhanahu Wa who has settled us and made us inhabit uh, in this abode uh, in the eternal home, min uh, fadlihi by His grace, here no difficulty. La yamusuna fiha nasabun, la yamusuna fiha lughub, and we are living in a place in this eternal abode where no hardship will ever afflict us and no weariness will ever touch us. It means we will never have any exertion, any difficulty, any hardship, nor will we have any fatigue, any weariness, any tiredness. So this is the notion. Then what does it mean? What's the ishara here? That who, the people who attained Jannah, what were the two things they had in this life? They had hard work and they would get tired by it. Those were the people who entered into Jannah. Because this is the comment about Jannah, that now we're in a place where we rest and relaxation. And those people who do R&R in this world, hmm, they may have to face some hard work in Jannah. And those people who do hard work in this world, they will get their R&R, rest and relaxation in Jannah. So these are the two things. This is the thing. This is what they're describing about Jannah. So it means the path to Jannah. So that's what it means. That's what I'm not saying. I won't use the word moderate there. It means those who didn't excel in good deeds. It's not deliberately being moderate, right? But they weren't of the greatest rank of Siddiqeen or Oliya, right? So you can call them Muqtasid because they were doing Qasid. They were still people who were determined on the course of right action, but they didn't excel and reach the greatest heights. They'll also make them to Jannah. Either way, all the people of Jannah will say this, that this is a place in which there is no exertion and there is no 
fatigue and there is no hardship and difficulty and there is no fatigue or being tired. Verse number 36 kafaru, And as far as those who disbelieve but will they have lahum naru jahannam they will have the fire of the hell la yukda alayhim and no decree will be ever passed it will never be decreed that they will pass away it will never be decreed that for yamutu that they should pass away it means death will never be decreed for them nor will la yukhaffafu anhum nor will the agony of that torment ever be lightened and reduced for them Thus Allah Ta'ala says, Thus do we repay and do we punish every disbeliever. And they will beg for help therein, and they will ask, Rabbana akhrijna na'mul saliha that Allah Ta'ala take us out and we will go back and do good deeds, not like the things that we used to do. We will act righteously and we won't do what we used to do. But then Allah Ta'ala will say to them, that, that did we not give you a long enough life did not we give you sufficient age in life? That you could have been receptive and you could have taken the lesson. Did we, given, did we not give you enough of life that you could have taken heed as the person who takes heed, takes heed and did not a warner come to you? And you should taste the punishment of the fire of Jahannam and know that the oppressors and the wrongdoers will have no savior, no helper in Jahannam. Right? Here, this is the basic message of Quran al-Kareem, this concept of Jannah and Jahannam. So when the ayat about Jannah and Jahannam are recited or read, then our feeling in our heart should be that Allah subhanahu wa we can only and only want Jannah and we cannot in any way, any way, we have no ability to withstand even the slightest second in Jahannam. Right? And we should make our life in such a way that every step in our life is a step taken towards Jannah and every step in our life is a step that is taken away from Jahannam. Verses 38 towards the end. In Allah Al-Maghrib Al-Maghrib Al-Ard Indeed Allah Subhanahu knows the unseen and the secrets of the heavens and the earth. Innahu alimun bidhatis sudur And in fact Allah Subhanahu knows everything that lies in the breasts and the hearts. Right, so here, again, he knows our thoughts, he knows our feelings, and when it comes to unbelievers, he knows their lies and their tricks. When it comes to hypocrites, he knows their hypocrisies, their deceptions. He knows everything. Allah Subhanahu is the one who made you deputies on earth. Whomsoever disbelieves, then his kufr will be to his own detriment, and the kufr of the kuffar will only increase the wrath of the rub upon them, and the kufr of the kuffar will only increase them in their loss. Say to them that Rayatum Shirka Okumaladina Yitaduna Mindunallah that tell me have you seen uh, say to them that have you seen your idols to which you pray instead of Allah Subhanahu? Show me what they have created on earth, or show me that do they share a partnership with Allah Subhanahu in the heavens, or have we given them a book or scripture from which they have uh, from which they have some proof and evidence for the shirk that they do? No, in fact the Zalimun in you that the Zalimun, the wrongdoers and oppressors, they simply make deceptive and false promises to one another and they falsely promise one illusion for another to one another. Means they're just spreading mischief and spreading lies and they deceive each other into disbelief. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that being who holds up the 
heavens and the earth, lest that they should fall and fail. And if they should fail, uh, then uh, no one else will be able, there will be no other being that can hold them up. Indeed, in the Hukana Haliman Ghafura, Allah Subhanahu is all tolerant, is all, is Halim, is withholds his punishment and is Ghafur and is all forgiving. Right. Verse 42. They take oaths by Allah Subhanahu wa and they take the most binding oaths by Allah Subhanahu that if a warner came to them, they would be better guided than any of the peoples. But when the warner did come to them, that only increased their irresponsibility. Right? So this can be referring to the Number one, uh, the Ahl Kitab who were supposedly waiting for the Prophet but it also refers to the Mushrikeen of Makkah Makarama, because when the Mushrikeen used to meet these Jews and Christians who kept coming to settle in Medina Manawra, or when the Mushrikeen of Makkah used to travel to Sham, so all of the Jews and Christians, not all, but many of the ones they met, would tell them that, oh, you are from that place, Makkah Madina, you are from that place where the last Prophet will come. So the Kufar of the Krish would tell the Jews and Christians that, oh, we are from the place, we didn't know that, we're from the place where the last Prophet will come. Okay, if he comes, whenever he comes, we'll accept him. So before the Prophet came, they would actually tell the Jews and Christians that we're so honored and happy that the last Prophet will be from the Arabs, and you're saying he's going to come in our area, and when they come, we promise that we will accept him. And that's what they would tell the Jews and Christians, right? And in fact, sometimes they would make that promise to justify not accepting Christianity because until the Prophet came, Christianity was visited at the time that no, no, we're going to accept the Prophet that you say is coming to us. So they made this, but yet when the Nadir came to them, فَلَمَّا جَاءُمْ نَذِيرٌ مَا زَادَهُمْ إِلَّا نُفُورًا It didn't increase them in their Iman, increase them in nothing else except their Nafur, in their Nafrat, in their animosity, in their hostility. And that animosity and hostility is why because istikbaran fil ard, because they are arrogant on earth, and they are conniving and scheming evil on earth. And the Allah says, but this conniving of evil will encompass no one; it will encompass only those who devise those schemes themselves. So it means that they are only begetting an evil that will come back to haunt them. To the regard anything but the way of the ancients. You will find, Nabi Akram, you will find no changing. Same thing here. That you will find, Here means you will find, there, there were tabdil, here is tahwil. It literally means, like in Urdu, you would say, Pirna. There is no averting the way of Allah SWT. You will not be able to divert or avert anything in Allah SWT. So, that you will not be able to find any change in Allah's ways. And then you will not be able to find any diversion or diverting or you could even say any adjustment in the ways of Allah. So, that's even stronger if we were to use the English word no change and no adjustment. So, this is the way Allah is. And part of this also means that Allah will always punish the disbelievers. There will be no change in that. There is nothing that can avert and divert that punishment from them. There is nothing that will adjust Allah Ta'ala's decision to punish them. Verse 44, as Allah Ta'ala said several times I read in Quran, that have they not traveled the earth and seen what was the result and the outcome of how those people ended up who had been before them, even though they were more powerful than they are. Indeed, Allah Subhanahu wa is such that nothing in the Samawat and Ard can thwart Him in any way. But Allah Subhanahu is all-knowing and He is all-powerful. Verse 45, last verse of the Surah, is if Allah Subhanahu were to take man to task or to punish human beings for every single thing, this I told you, this I was coming. 
that if Allah SWT was to punish humanity for what they do then there will be no single creature left to walk on the face of this earth and then Allah Ta'ala would punish everyone if, every, if it wasn't for Allah's mercy and forgiveness it was just punishment that whatever mistakes and evil sins that humans do, Allah Ta'ala would punishment for that, there would be no one left on the face of this earth. That truly means the back of this earth, Zahra, but it means on the surface of this earth. But it's Allah Ta'ala's, He's Ghufur, He's Halim, He's Halim, He withholds His punishment, even though He's able to punish, He's forgiving and merciful, He's At-Tawab, He accepts people's Tawbah, then He enables them to do Hasanat, that can wipe good deeds, that can wipe away the effect of their sins. But if Allah Ta'ala had wanted, He could have also been such a Allah and Lord over us that He could have punished everyone for everything that everyone did. And Allah says if He did that, then there wouldn't be anybody left on this earth. And it could also be understood if you address it to disbelievers, that look, if Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala punished you for your disbelief, yes, the punishment would come. That when you're saying, when is the punishment going to come? None of you would be left on this earth. However, walakin, however, yu'akhiruhum ila ajalim musamma. However, Allah subhanahu defers them, gives them respite and reprieve until a known and fixed and appointed certain time. فَإِذَا جَاءَ أَجْلُهُمْ And when that appointed time comes, when their term is up, then what will happen? فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ بِعِبَادِهِ بَسِيرًا Then Allah subhanahu is ever watchful over his ibad. Right. Here this ends. Surah number 35. Surah 36, Surah Yasin. This surah has been called by Nabi Akrim Sassam the heart of the Quran. Heart of the Quran. Means that if you recite this surah as if you've recited the whole Quran in terms of the impact it will have on you, in terms of the blessings you will get. Many of you know many of the fadail of the surah. Once we did a very detailed tafsir of the surah, that is also, I think, I think that's also available online. So we're going to do it a bit briefly today. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Yaseen Wal Qur'an Al-Hakim First word in this surah is Qur'an. After the wow, first word in the surah is Al-Qur'an. So here Yaseen, as we've told you before, only Allah Ta'ala knows best what this word means. Wal Qur'an Al-Hakim Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is The wow is for Qasim. means Allah Ta'ala is taking an oath by the Qur'an Al-Kareem. Surah Yasin is a Makki Surah and entirely it was revealed before Makki means that it was revealed before the Hijra, before Nabi Akram migrated to Medina Manawara. A hadith that has been mentioned in the Sunnah of Abu Dawood as well the Muslim Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal that the Prophet said that Surah Yasin is the Qalb of the Qur'an Qalb al-Qur'an and it's the heart of Qur'an al-Karim and this is why a lot of people used to recite Surah Yasin in Tahajjud because the Prophet mentioned that Tahajjud was the prayer which was to be performed in the heart of the night so they used to say that in that Salah which is performed in the Qalb of the Layl we should recite the Qalb of the Qur'an in that Imam Ghazayr Abtai has mentioned that why is it that Surah Yasin is viewed as the Qalb of the Qur'an? Well, number one, because there's a lot of mention of Akhirah in the Surah. And because the Akhirah is the essence of the Qur'an, because the whole purpose of our life is the Akhirah. 
and the akhirah is the meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it is the way we attain the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is how we will live for all of eternity so preparation of the akhirah preparation for the akhirah is the asal maqsad and entire purpose of the dunya so this is why Imam Ghazali said that this is first been mentioned as the kalm of the Quran in the hadith is in the Sahih of Ibn Hibban uh, it is mentioned that it is Sunnah, the Prophet recommended that a person should recite Surah Yasin near a person who is dying. So this is one of the things that when a person is passing away, that those near and loving and beloved ones to that person should recite Surah Yasin to them repeatedly while they are passing away. This, what does it mean? Clearly it means that... Uh, the hadith says that the person, when you recite Surah Yasin near person, uh, the second hadith is in, also in Sayyid bin Hibban that when you recite Surah Yasin near a person who has died, the process of their death will become easier. So even when they have passed away, to continue to recite Surah Yasin until they're actually complete that, or begin that journey entirely when they're laid in their grave. So this could mean something physical. It can also be physically reciting Surah Yasin before death can also perhaps physically alleviate the pain a person may be feeling. It also definitely means spiritual, that it may make it easier for them or easier for their root to come out and it may make them easier to go through those stages uh, after they pass away up till the time that people bathe them, then do janazah over them, then lower them in the grave and the angels come and ask them uh, the questions in the grave. So first I will Quran al-Hakim. Hakim is related both to hukam and hikmah. So it means this is the Quran al-Karim, this is the book that is wise, and it also means this is the book that adjudicates, this is the book that judges, and this is the nisbat in this Arabic language, that hukam is based on hikmah. That judgment must always be based on wisdom, and the Quran al-Karim is the book of both, the book of judgment and the book of wisdom, the book of wisdom-based judgment. And then the next thing, the very next thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in this surah is the Prophet innaka laminal mursaleen. So Quran and Nabuwa. Quran and Nabuwa. Innaka laminal mursaleen. Abdullah has rejoined us. Hmm? Abdullah for many years has always sat right in front of me. But thus far he's always sat in the back of the back room. Hmm? Innaka. That indeed you, Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu you are from the prophets and messengers. So what does that mean? Second major point is that what is being done here is that Allah Subhanahu is telling the Prophet Sallallahu the vast majority of people in Makkah Muqarramah initially, because remember this is Makkah before Hijra. So this is a time when the masses of people are denying his Nabuwa. They're denying his messengerhood. So here Allah Subhanahu is doing tasalli to the Prophet Sallallahu by saying that innaka Laminal Mursaleen. There's two taqeeds here. Inna comes for emphasis in Arabic and the lam la comes for emphasis. So I mean indeed you you indeed are from the Prophets. So the Prophet is giving to Sunday. Allah Subhanahu is giving to Sunday to the Prophet. Another meaning another sense that you have this emphasis here is that Allah Subhanahu is directly negating and rebuking the Kufar Mushrikeen who are denying the Prophet as a Prophet by compl- by proclaiming in the Quran that no indeed you you are from amongst the Prophets. Right, and third, another uh, major thing: Allah Sirat Mustaqim. Right there, in three lines, you've got Quran, Prophet, Sirat Mustaqim. That's your whole deen right there. That even just these three lines is sufficient 
to say Surah Yasin is the Qalb of Quran because these are the three things. So Allah Siratim Mustaqim. It means number one that O oh, you Innaka you Prophetam are on the Siratim Mustaqim. You are on the straight and correct path, and the path of the prophets is the straight and correct path, and this is the path that you are inviting people towards. What Siratul Mustaqim is, we did that in detail in the Tafsir of Surah Fatah. It is that path which is straight, which is correct, which is true, which will lead a person directly and irrefutably to the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Qurb and into Jannat in Akhirah. Tanzeel al-Aziz al-Rahim. And this Qur'an al-Karim is a Tanzeel. Tanzeel means it is a revelation, right? It's a revelation that has come down over time to Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Of Al-Aziz and Al-Rahim, Al-Aziz is Allah subhanahu wa the Almighty One, and Al-Rahim is the All-Merciful One. So the first thing Allah ta'ala is affirming that the Qur'an al-Kareem is something that has been revealed by Allah subhanahu wa to Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu So first Allah ta'ala swears by His book, the Qur'an al-Hakim, then Allah subhanahu wa mentions his, the Nabu'ah of Nabiya Kareem sallallahu and then He mentions the Qur'an as being sent. So what does that mean? You would normally thought that first mention the Qur'an, then mention Qur'an as Tanzeel revealed to the Prophet, and then mention the Prophet as the person the Qur'an is revealed to. So here the Mufassirin have said that Allah Ta'ala mentioned Mursaleen first and Tanzeel second, because in some ways, Prophets are more important than Revelation. Yes, Nabiya Kareem Sassam is more important than Qur'an in some ways, because he is the deliverer of Qur'an, he can, is the messenger who is delivering Qur'an. He is also the one who will live the Qur'an. He will demonstrate the Qur'an. He will teach the Qur'an. So it's even more important, Allah SWT is saying, and you see this in the history of humanity, Allah Ta'ala has never sent a book without a prophet. But many times Allah Ta'ala has sent prophets without books. Never has the scripture just come and human beings just go after to discover it and follow it. No. Never has a scripture, kitab, come without a nabi. But many, many thousands of anbiya came without books. Because the prophet is more important than the book. Right? The prophets are more important in a particular sense. Right? It can also mean that when Allah Ta'ala, if you take this first ayat, and when Allah Ta'ala is responding to the disbelievers, so it means that what is Allah Ta'ala more saying? Later he said, Tanzeel, this is indeed revealed. First he refutes their saying that he's not a prophet. As Allah SWT is saying is that the rejection of Nabuwa, you're rejecting Nabuwa unbelievers, is even more gross. And that's more prominent. And I should speak about that first by saying, Inna kalamin al And then your rejection that this book actually has been revealed by Allah SWT, I will repudiate that later, two verses later when I say, Tanzeel al-Aziz al-Rahim. So this is a very important aspect of Surah Yasin that I told you was coming. Is it mentions the important aspects of Nabuwa. And what is the purpose of Nabuah? Alright? <coughs> what is the purpose of Nabuah? Sorry, that's verse number 6. لِتُنذِرَ كُمَّ مَا أُنذِرَ أَبَاءُهُمْ فَهُمْ غَافِلُونَ So that you, Nabiya Kareem Sassam, that you have been sent as a prophet. For what reason? To warn. To warn so you may warn a people whose forefathers were not warned. And thus, because of that, they were ghafil, they were heedless and negligent. So what does it mean? Allah is also acknowledging that these Mushrikeen and Makkah their fathers, grandfathers, never received a Nabi, never received a scripture. They had not received a warner yet. So Allah Ta'ala is sending Nabiya Kareem to them to warn them for those who have become heedless. Right. 
Now you remember that earlier on, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said in Quran, "Wa immin ummatin illa khalafiha nadir." Just now we did it in Surah Fatir, verse number uh, twenty-four, right? That Allah Taala said, "There is not a single community except that we have sent a nadir to them." And now Allah Taala is saying that their forefathers never received a nadir. In the outward looking, you would say this is a contradiction, right? In your akal alone, you cannot remove this con- contradiction. All right. So, one notion here is that it is being used, warner, the word warner is being used as a sense of nabi. Right? So, the Mashrikeen of Makkah had not received a nabi. But there Allah Ta'ala said that every community received a nabi, and their forefathers would also be a community. So, who did they receive? So, that means Nazir, warner, is not just nabi. Now, if you're following me here. A warner is not just a nabi. How can you establish that from the same Surah Yasin? So what's the middle verse? Verse number 4, Allah siratim mustaqim. Remember we did this few in Surah Fatah. We make dua, ihdina siratim mustaqim. Oh Allah Ta'ala grant me hidayat to siratim mustaqim. Siratul ladhina an amta alayhim. Not siratul anbiya wa mursaleen. Siratul ladhina an amta alayhim. The path of those whom you have favored. Who are the people who Allah Ta'ala has favored? That has also come in Quran and Surah Tawbah. Alladheena an'amallahu Those who Allah Ta'ala has favored. Minan nabiyyina wa siddiqina wa shuhada'i wa salihin. Four types of people. So the sirat al-mustaqeem is a path of prophets. Siddiqeen, the true followers of the prophets. The shuhada, the martyrs who gave up their life for the sake of the teachings of the prophets. And the salihin, the righteous followers of those prophets. And because all four are on Surah Al-Mustaqim, so all four can be a Nadir. So yes, indeed, if when you take Nadir to mean a Nabi, as it is here, then yes, the four, the forefathers of the Moshrikin of Mecca did not receive a Nabi. And hence, Nabi is being sent to them. But if you take Nadir to mean any type of warner, then the other eye would be correct. That no, they were sent because, like I already told you, they had met sages from the Ahl Kitab and the Jews and the Christians. They could have left shirk on that basis, but they said, no, we will wait for that Nabi to come who you said has been promised as the last and final prophet to us. So, I was showing you, I mean, I don't think, I would really, I would give you a prize if you've been listening to me that carefully today. That in Surah Fatir you saw that, <laughs> that every community has been sent in the and here. Allah Ta'ala said, I'll give you a prize if you had that question. You didn't, none of you had that question. But still, I want to show the people raise that question. And this is the answer to that question. So for the Arabs, they have not received a prophet way back since the time of Sayyidina Ismail al-Islam. But many Siddiqeen have traveled through that area. Right? And those Siddiqeen were following some Nabi or the other. But the Arabs had refused to follow those Siddiqeen also means they were not Christian population majority. They were not Jewish population majority. They had refused all of that. So this is what Allah Ta'ala means when He said, فَهُمْ غَافِلُونَ That they were in a state of ghafla. They were heedless. They were unaware. They never got a prophetic warner. And whatever non-prophetic warners came to them, they were heedless and unaware of them. Okay, then also, لَقَدْ حَقَّ الْقَوْلُ عَلَىٰ أَكْثَرِهِمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ So indeed, Allah Ta'ala says now, the decree and the, has already been proven true against most of them, but the vast majority of them don't, have not chosen not to take Iman. 
This is a theme that we've done with you before, that both at that time in the history of this world, the vast majority of people will not be believers. So what does Allah do? Allah places a yoke or a chain around their necks, right? And they're weighed down by chains. This has been taken, number one, as literally. Literally they have chains in the sense that in the, in the fire of Jahannam they were chains of fire. It can also be taken figuratively that because they reject Wahi and Nabuwa, they cannot reach the heights of humanity, that is the potential of human being. So their kufr and the rejection of the Prophet in Quran weighs them down in chains. Ghaflat is a chain. We think that if we're ghafl, we're free, free and unfettered. That's the Western concept of liberty. That you're free and unfettered, free to do whatever you want. In Islam, it's the opposite. Your freedom through submitting to Allah SWT. The Quran liberates you. The Sunnah liberates you. And if you're not following that, you're in chains. So that is a figurative way that this has been understood. That by rejecting the Quran, by rejecting the Biyakrimsam, it is as if they are trapped in chains. Verse number 9. Allah says that we have placed a barrier, set a barrier in front of them, and set a barrier behind them. And then we have enshrouded them and enveloped them in such a way that they are not able to see. Alright. What is that barrier that is being placed in front of them? Imam Badazidantan is Tafsir Kabir has mentioned that there are two types of barriers. One is the barrier that they've constructed for themselves. Right? One is the barrier that they've constructed for themselves. That is their own disbelief. Their own to, their own obstinacy. Their own stubbornness in accepting deen and accepting iman. That, so that is the barrier that Allah Ta'ala has set and put in front of them. Then there's the barrier that is behind them. The barrier behind them is... Uh, The Dalala, or let's say when they actively choose not to accept, then the barrier, Allah Ta'ala puts a barrier behind them. It means, we explained to you before, that when a person chooses to go astray, then Allah Ta'ala lets them go astray. Chut means what? I won't send any more hidayah on your heart. You won't get any more hidayah. You won't feel any inner conscious calling you back to Imam. You won't be able to recognize the Prophet as a Nabi. Allah Ta'ala lets them go on the path that they have decreed for themselves. So now when they have these two barriers, right? So then there's this notion of فَأَغْشَيْنَاهُمْ means there's a There's a veil, an enveloping, an enshrouding that comes over them. فَهُمْ لَا يُبْسِرُونَ And يُبْسِرُونَ Obviously they people that can physically see on earth, they lose their basira. They lose their perception. They lose their insight. They're unable to tell truth from falsehood. They see the Prophet They can't tell if he's true or if he's false. They see something from Quran. They don't realize it's true or it's false. They lose their forgone. They lose their sense. And the greatest thing, obviously, that they were veiled from or enshrouded from is that they cannot, specifically for these, uh, the original uh, addressees of this, the Mushrikeen of Makkah, is that they cannot perceive the Prophet's nur. And you can just imagine, imagine how hard-hearted a human being must be that they see the Prophet with their own eyes, his physical beauty. They can perceive his spiritual beauty. They call him a Sadiqul Amin, and they still don't accept Iman. All that could only be if they have barriers and if they're enshrouded in some type of veils of darknesses. There's some obstruction on their basira.
That's why then in number 10, Al-Ayah Allah Ta'ala says that they're so gone, وَسَوَاءٌ عَلَيْهِمْ أَأَنذَرْتُهُمْ أَمْ لَمْ تُنذِرْهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ That it is the same. It's the same to them. Whether you warn them or you don't warn them, لَا تُؤْمِنُونَ They won't believe. Allahu Akbar. That's how deeply enshrouded in their ignorance or arrogance or obstinacy or stubbornness or disbelief they are. That nothing you can say the apostles will make any difference to them. Warning them and not warning them is equal. Right? And this is something you can remember. Sayyidina Rasulullah used to go to Abu Jahl. Right? Famous story in the Sira. Once it was raining outside. Tremendous thunderstorm. And everybody was in their homes. All of a sudden Abu Jahl hears a knock. He's amazed at who in the world would be knocking in this thunderstorm. He sees Sayyidina Rasulullah standing there dripping wet. He says, why have you come? And he says, I thought that this thunderstorm would soften your heart. This natural phenomenon of this incredible rain would soften your heart and make you realize and open to perhaps being invited to the mercy and majesty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Abu Jal said, oh, you've come again to invite me to that religion. And he slammed the door on his face. And then some say this was the occasion of this revelation. But it makes no difference to them. Right? And again, remember I've told you throughout this course that you never you have to be very careful. You never want to be a believer who actually displays the characteristics of disbelievers. Yes, there are certain people who are so distant from deen that outwardly, in terms of their birthright, they're born Muslims, but it makes no difference. You can recite Quran to them. It makes no difference to them. You can recite all the verses about interest being haram to them. It doesn't put a dent in them. You can talk to them about so many things from the sunnah. It has no impact on them. It makes no difference to them one way or the other. So you don't want ever for ourselves to become like that. It means we don't want to ever be immune or desensitized or numb or impervious to teachings of Quran and Sunnah. Otherwise that is actually the sifat that Allah Ta'ala is mentioning in Surah Yaseen for those people who are unbelievers. Verse 11, So who is this warning for? And who is this warner the Prophet for? So Allah says in Quran that you can only warn him, you can only warn those who follow the dhikr, who follow the ittiba of the dhikr, who follow the reminder and the admonishment and the advice, yani the Quran that Allah has given him, and they fear Allah Ta'ala. And we've done this before now, I've done it two, three times here today. They have to have fear in their heart for the warning to affect them. And if they become fearless, and what are the words important? Khashir Rahman. And people like to say, oh, I don't, why should I fear Allah Ta'ala is Ar-Rahman? Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, wa khashir Rahman. They fear Allah even knowing Allah is all merciful Allah, they still fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That person who realizes that notwithstanding Allah Ta'ala's infinite mercy, still he has infinite might and majesty and I should fear him. Or that person who is softened by Allah Ta'ala's mercy, such that he loves Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and then he fears disappointing as Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. He feels betraying the mercy of Ar-Rahman by disobeying. That is the fear that he has. Like we tell you many times that the lover, their ultimate fear is to disappoint and betray their beloved. Even though they have not seen Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though Allah ta'ala is unseen, Allah ta'ala is telling the Prophet, you can warn such people. These are people who will take the warning. 
And then what you should do, in fact, instead of warning them, فَبَشِّرْهُ In fact, you should give them glad tidings. فَبَشِّرْهُ Give them glad tidings. بِمَغْفِرَةٍ وَأَجْنْ كَرِيمٍ A great, tremendous forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a great and tremendous reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because you could put Kareem on both of those. So great and tremendous forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a great and tremendous reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, who are the murad of the Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Is the murad of the Prophet sallallahu are those who do ittiba of the dhikr of Qur'an, of all the advice and admonishment therein, and those who fear Allah subhanahu wa So we should make dua to Allah subhanahu wa that He gives us those two attributes. And even today, if we adopt those two attributes, then the teachings of Sunnah, teachings of Nabu would seek us out, they would impact our heart. Every hadith, every sunnah would enter into our heart if we had these two attributes that we follow Quran and that we fear Ar-Rahman. In verse number 12, Allah says in verse 12, For we will revive the dead and we record everything that they have sent ahead and he sent before them and what they will leave behind them, what they will leave after them. Allah says we have accounted for every single thing. We have encompassed and recorded every single thing in a book that is clear. In a book that is clear. Alright, so number one, Allah tells that being who revives the dead. But not only does he revive the dead, he writes down everything. This is uh, a very important verse of Quran al Karim. It means that people leave athar. Right? They leave behind athar, you leave behind footsteps, you leave footprints, you leave a legacy of what you do. Everyone's life is not just lived, everyone's life is also sent forward in a record to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And everyone's life they live is a legacy they bequeath to those who come after them. So that means we should want our life to be, should want to leave behind good athar. Remember those people who have good athar, their footprints lead us to Salatul Mustaqim. Their Siddiqeen, Salihin, Shu'adah, obviously Anbiya, right? So they've left a good legacy. So we should realize that our life is something that we will leave trails behind. And all of that will be recorded by Allah subhanahu wa This is why Sayyidina Rasulullah said, Man ahsana sunnatan, that that person who leaves behind a good way or a good path, then Allah ta'ala will give him the reward for that. And anyone who follows him and emulates them in that good way and in that good path. Similarly, Nabi Akram said, that the person who guides towards a good deed is like the person who has done the good deed himself, means that we should want that some of the legacies that we leave behind should contain in them guidance for those who come afterwards. Alright, and this is what the Prophet said, that there are certain things that a person leaves behind that will continue to benefit them after they die. Number one is Sadaqa Jariya, a charity that continues to benefit. Number two, Ilmun Nafi, knowledge that continues to benefit. And number three is a pious child, son or daughter, a pious child who uh, will make dua for them or is simply remains on piety due to the tarbiyah of their parents. It means that if parents do tarbiyah of their children, Tarbiyah doesn't just mean manners and being polite and saying thank you. Tarbiyah in our deen means they make their children awliya. That's what tarbiyah their is. 
People today have sold themselves short. What do they think that means? That they get into HSN, they get into Harvard, and they learn how to say thank you. No. In our deen, tarbiyat of awlad means that I raised my child such that by the time they reached adulthood, they reached adulthood and they reached wilayat at the same time. That's how to raise a child. If you want to call tarbiyat awlad. Allah Akbar. That's what our deen is teaching. Right? So people who raise children like that, that they remain steadfast on deen, that every single second, every breath that child takes, not just the du'as for the parents, every second and every breath that child takes on taqwa and deen will be a sawab for the parents. To raise children like that, that is a legacy that will benefit a person after they've passed away. Verse 13, Allah subhanahu wa says, وَذْرِبْ لَهُمْ مَثَلًا أصحاب القرية إذ جاءه المرسلون. So cite to them Nabiya Kareem so some the example of the people of a particular town. There's a large range of opinion in the Mufassirun as to which particular town this was, but some have said it's the town of what they call Antioch. It was a, one thing that's clear because it's going to come. It, it was one of the major cities of Christianity. The town was one of the major cities or uh, centers, if you will, of Christianity. So Allah Ta'ala knows best exactly what city that is, and knowing which city it is, is not even necessary for us uh, to get the lessons from this. So Allah Ta'ala says, when we sent two to them, right, uh, and here you're going to find... Hmm. I suppose we'll have to stop. I'm supposed to let you go at 5.15. If I begin the story. Okay, we stop over here. We got lucky. We stop at verse 12 tomorrow, inshallah. It's unfortunate for the men who work who may not be able to come, but inshallah tomorrow we'll continue and obviously finish Surah Yasin and go onwards. So here, even in this first 12 ayahs, I hope we were able to show you sufficiently how it is Kalbul Qur'an and then the rest of the parables and stories Allah Ta'ala is going to mention on Surah Yasin, we will simply have to do them for you tomorrow. We ask that you put the heart of Qur'an in our heart, that you put the whole Qur'an in our heart, that you put love for Nabi Kareem Sassam in our heart, that you put the whole of Isira and Sunnah in our heart. Ya Allah, we have spent so long giving our hearts to this world, giving our hearts to the people of this world. We have given our hearts to the beauty of this world. We have given our hearts to the wealth of this world. Ya Rabbi Kareem, in this month of Ramadan, we want to give our hearts to you, Ya Allah, our hearts to your Anbiya, our hearts to your Quran, our hearts to your Siddiqeen, our hearts to your Shuhada, our hearts to the Salihin. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask that you accept this niyyah from us. Ya Allah, we ask that you soften our hard heart. We ask that you revive our dead heart. We ask that you put the nood of ilm into our heart, the nood of iman into our heart. Ya Allah, we are afraid that we have already passed that point where, Ya Allah, the Quran no longer moves us, the Sunnah no longer changes us. 
us. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you save us from such a fate. Ya Rabbi, yes, you never let us become numb about the deen. Let us never fall behind such a barrier. Let us never be enshrouded in such a ghishawa. Ya Allah, we ask that you put the nur of iman in our heart, the nur of deen in our heart. Grant us basira, Ya Allah. Make us who perceive haq to be haq and batil to be batil. Ya Allah, let us realize the nafs for what it is and let us realize you for who you are. Ya Allah, let us discard the nafs and Ya Allah, let us discard our slavery to our nafs and let us adopt slavery to you. Ya Allah, we are sick and tired of being creatures of passion, creatures of desire, slaves to our nafs. Ya Allah, we want to be slaves to you, Ya Allah. We want to be true to you, loyal to you, loving to you, devout to you, devoted to you. Ya Allah, make us amongst your ibad. Make us amongst ibadullah. Make us amongst ibadul rahman. Make us amongst ibadik as-salihin. Ya Allah, Ya Alhamdulillah. Rahimin. Ya Allah, we ask that you accept all of the fasts, all of the prayers, all of the du'as of all of this ummah in this month of Ramadan. Ya Rahman. Ya Allah, we ask that you enable us to remember one another in our du'as. Let us be a means of strength for one another. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Hum apna dar naseeb farma. Hum ikampna ata farma. Rola naseeb farma. Khishiyat ata farma. Khofi khuda ata farma. Ya Rabbi Kareem, hum wo mu'min ہیں جو آپ سے ڈرتے نہیں آپ کی نافرمانی سے چھوڑتے نہیں یا رب کریم ہمیں ہوش نصیب فرما شعور عطا فرما لعلکم تتکون آپ کو امید ہے قرآن میں کہ اس رمضان مبارک میں ہم میں بھی متقین بن جائیں گے یا رب کریم آپ ہمارے بارے میں اپنے امید کو پورا فرما ہم سب کو متقین میں سے بنا تقوی والی نعمت ہمیں عطا فرما محتاط بنا متقی بنا آلہ اولا افضل ازکا اتھر زیادہ سے زیادہ اچھا عمل ہمیں نصیب فرما ہمیں اچھا ایمان عطا فرما مضبوط حیاء عطا فرما اچھا صبر عطا فرما اچھا شکر عطا فرما یا رب کریم جس طرح آپ نے ہمیں دنیا میں ہر ہر اچھی نعمت سے نوازا یا رب کریم آپ ہمیں دین کی نعمتیں سے محروم نہ فرما دین کی اچھی نعمتیں ہمیں عطا فرما دین کی تھوس نعمتیں ہمیں عطا فرما یا رب کریم جس طرح آپ نے ہم سب کو دنیا کے علم عطا فرما یا رب کریم ہمیں دین کا علم سے محروم نہ کرنا قرآن کریم کا علم عطا فرما سنت نبی کریم صلی اللہ علیہ وسلم کا علم عطا فرما اس علم کا نور سے ہمارے سینوں کو منور فرما یا رب کریم ہم آپ سے آپ ہی مانگتے ہیں آپ کو آپ ہی چاہتے ہیں ہم آپ ہی کے لئے روزہ رکھتے ہیں آپ ہی کو پکارتے ہیں آپ کا اپنا قرآن سمجھ کر پڑھتے سیکھتے ہیں یا رب کریم ہمیں بھی اپنا بنا دیجئے جب ہم ربنا ربنا کہہ رہے ہیں یا رب کریم آپ بھی عبدی عبدی سے ہمیں پکار دیجئے ہم سب کو اپنا بنا دیجئے یا رب کریم ہمیں اپنائیت نصیب فرما اپنے میت عطا فرما یا رب کریم جو مانگا ہے وہ بھی عطا فرما جو بھی اپنے دل میں سینے میں راز میں جو نیک شری چیز آپ سے مانگ رہا ہے سب کی دلی فریادوں کو قبول فرما یا رب کریم امت مسلمہ پر اپنے خصوصی رحمت نازل فرما جہاں بھی مظلومین ہیں متاثرین ہیں اپنے غیبی مدد ان کو شامل حال فرما کتنے مظلومین سائم پھر بھی روزہ رکھ رہے ہیں وہ مظلومین سائمین ہیں یا ربی کریم ان کو بکار سنیجے اپنی نصرت عطا فرما اپنے قوت سے ان کو کبھی بنا یا ربی کریم ظالم حکمرانوں کو ہدایت عطا فرما جن کی قسمت میں ہدایت نہیں ہے ان کو چن چن کو دفع 
دور عطا فرما یا رب کریم امن کا معاملہ فرما اطمینان کا معاملہ فرما امت مسلمہ کو دوبارہ با امن با عزت بنا ربنا تکبر منا انکا انت السمیع العلیم و توبو علینا انکا انت التواب الرحیم و صلی اللہ تعالی علی حبیبه سیدنا محمد و علی آلہ و صحبہ اجمعین برحمتکا یا ارحم الراحمین